everybody, and welcome back to Butter With That, a podcast where some friends from Philly get together to talk about movies. As you know, we've become part of the Movie John Network, uh, which you can find several great Philly podcasts through uh, all of the movie base and uh, some of them featuring good friends of ours. So absolutely worth a look. And uh, we're happy to be a part of that family. We are diving into a new theme. As you guys know, we have uh, just done a pretty thorough deep dive into uh, Pride and Prejudice, as we have uh, thought about doing for a long time, yielded some pretty interesting results across the board, and I think we learned a lot about each other through our character quiz, so a very fun episode that I'm sure uh, devotees will enjoy since we've been talking about it for a while. One thing that we've been talking about for a while is this new theme, which is going to be sort of a director's spotlight. We're going to be spending some time really sinking our teeth into a film, uh, a selection that we would present of a specific director uh, that we've chosen. And I think it's going to be a, a pretty interesting insight into uh, what kind of directors we uh, were drawn to and uh, what sort of movies we enjoy. But before we get to that, what else have we been watching? I know that uh, you guys have been keeping up on several things. The penultimate episode of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Um, so good. It has been my favorite so far. And I think it's because it was less action and more these characters being people. And um, it was just phenomenal. And I really hope that we get a season two. I'm both excited and scared for Friday (laughs) for the final episode. But please, God, if there is someone looking out for us in this world, there will be a season two. Uh, I think the most interesting I, I watched since we last talked was the first seven minutes of Mortal Kombat, uh, the new movie coming oh. out. Why only the first seven minutes? So uh, as we're recording this, Mortal Kombat comes out on Friday, so a few days from now. And so Warner Brothers released the first seven minutes on YouTube, and I am so incredibly excited. I'm like a medium Mortal Kombat fan. I think the games are fun. Um, I've only played the most recent ones, kind of like in the rebooted era. Uh, but as long as there's like cool action, costumes, cool fatalities, and brutal kills, and a you know semi-interesting story, I think uh, this movie could be a real home run. And maybe this will be the first movie that I see in theaters because I'll watch it this weekend and then be fully vaccinated soon. And um, in like mid-May, this is going to hit theaters for the summer. I swear to God, I have already seen this movie because of how much I've heard about this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I- I know, I know literally nothing about Mortal Kombat, but if I have to hear Sub-Zero or Scorpion at all anymore, I I think that I'm going to have to watch it so I know what I'm already hating, you know? You know how that works? I learned today somebody kills somebody else that I I wasn't even a part of that conversation. And I was like, God damn, spoilers. I'm almost invested now, which I like hate. But here I am. I feel like that's one way to like get a mediocre movie to be watched is like leak parts of it, generate stupid conversations online and discourse about it. And so it's like people feel like they've seen it. Like you mentioned, Sam's, they feel like they have an an understanding of the entire story. And they're like, I guess I might as well just watch it because I so I know so much about it. Mm. Are we All contributing of those. to the problem, Christine? Or is that what you're saying? Huh? Are we contributing to the problem? Is that what you're no, saying? No, I'm saying that we are just at the whims of the machinations of production studios that release terrible movies. 
but whatever <laughs> for another conversation. Uh, speaking at the whims of machinations of production companies, I, in what might end up being an annual tradition, I am in the middle of rewatching all of the Mission Impossible movies. I'm at number, I'm on number two. We're just finished number two, so I'm on number three. And uh, yeah, it's just a great example of a franchise that gets better over time, which I feel like is a hard thing to think, like to find another example of. Um, so I'm just having a, having a great time getting ready for number seven, which I think will come out, I don't know, in the summer, in the fall. I don't know. Christine, the fact that your franchise is Mission Impossible <laughs> just warms the like the cockles of my heart. I like I love I love that. It's yeah, I mean, I feel like yeah, it I just can't I can't turn away. It's one of those things that it was surprising to hear until I heard you talk about it and then seeing <laughs> your passion for it was like, "Oh, of course this is it." Well, I'll unfortunately probably be bringing it up for the next at least six episodes as I'm making my way <laughs> through, the, through the rest of the franchise. Well, all I've really been watching has been, for the, at least the past week, has been the movie we're going to discuss because I really wanted to devote a lot of time to studying it, a lot of time to bring things to the fore that I really enjoy about it. As we have discussed um, at the onset, we've, we've established a new theme, and that is a director spotlight. And for... Me, uh, the choice that I went with was uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. We discussed his work before uh, via my favorite movie, There Will Be Blood, when we did that, I don't know, maybe like a thousand years back, it feels like now. But um, that was a really fun episode and some uh, really keen insights into uh, into his craft and uh, his execution via the group that I really enjoyed. Uh, so a little insight into uh, the director before we dive into the movie we'll be discussing. Paul Thomas Anderson uh, was born in 1970 in Studio City, Los Angeles, to Edwina and Ernie Anderson. Um, like Spielberg, he developed a love of filmmaking at a very young age, but unlike Spielberg, who cut his teeth shooting on 8mm film and editing it, uh, Anderson took to VHS and uh, editing between VCRs. As a senior at Montclair Prep, he wrote and filmed his first real production, a 30-minute Spinal Tap-inspired mockumentary, The Dirk Diggler Story. So keep that in your back pocket. Um, he attended Emerson College as an English major for two semesters, then went on to spend two days enrolled at NYU's film school. Uh, apparently, after turning in some of Pulitzer Prize winner David Mamet's work and receiving a C, he decided he'd had enough of NYU. He went on to his first commercial venture in 1993 with a short film called Coffee and Cigarettes, which landed him a deal with Riser Entertainment, uh, for whom he would make Sydney, later retitled Hard Eight in 1996. And with the success of that debut, Anderson vowed to commit himself to a second film um, over which he had a good deal more directorial control. So visiting his roots and reviving the Dirk Diggler story, he brought his Boogie Nights in 1997. And around this time, Anderson began dating recording artist Fiona Apple. Reportedly, theirs was a tumultuous relationship involving frequent substance abuse. And as far as reported, uh, Anderson acting as a verbally abusive and undermining partner. There's a crazy thing also about all this that I, I'm learning all this in the past week. Um, after reading uh, some of his bio, I discovered that he'd taken a course with author David Foster Wallace. And I jokingly said aloud to myself, huh, wonder if Anderson has ever pushed anybody out of a car too. And then realized, oh shit, he did. Um, this was an instance where Apple reports that at a charity event, Anderson uh, shoved her out of the parked car that they were in. 
he did go on to work with her again, Apple, um, on a music video years later. And he's also since been in a long-term relationship with uh, comedian Maya Rudolph, with whom he has four children. Uh, but was not happy to have learned all that stuff this past week. And it was a real bummer. Um, but uh, continuing with uh, you know his, uh, his, his work and summary of it here, um, from the success of Boogie Nights, Anderson moved on to the challenging existential drama Magnolia in 1999, following it up with the offbeat romantic comedy Punch Drunk Love in 2002. He then took several years off prepping for my favorite film of all time, There Will Be Blood in 07. Uh, and you can see our previous episode for details on that. Uh, his follow-up after the whirlwind of praise for blood was The Master, uh, a more polarizing but incredible portrait of a wayward World War II vet returning to the States to find purpose within an enigmatic religious cult. Uh, next was his adaptation of the postmodern author Thomas Pynchon's Inherent Vice in a 2014 dizzying detective comedy that was very interesting, but a uh, difficult watch in, in a lot of ways. You know, it's Pynchon. Adapting that's not easy. And then his most recent contribution is uh, 2017's Phantom Thread, a haunting study of the power dynamics within relationships, especially between an artist and their muse. Um, he's often collaborated with others repeatedly, uh, including actors Philip Seymour Hoffman, Daniel Day-Lewis, John C. Riley, Joaquin Phoenix, Melora Walters, and Philip Baker Hall, as well as cinematographer Robert Ellswit, editor Dylan Titchener, and composers John Bryan and Johnny Greenwood. He has a number of director trademarks. His style is noted for its tracking shots, extended takes, and themes surrounding family, self-destruction, and desperation. Uh, though he's always been a ravenous cinephile with a wide knowledge of the art, uh, he cites his biggest influences as Scorsese, Wells, Demi, Altman, Kubrick, and Robert Downey Sr. Uh, so that a bit of an insight into uh, the director that we're going to be talking about and the film that I've selected of his. Uh, obviously, you know, since we discussed their way of blood, I decided um, to pick a uh, to pick a different film of his that I think is maybe a little bit more approachable, depending upon whom you ask. And that is 1997's Boogie Nights. Uh, we'll also say that uh, content warning at the top of this episode, uh, before we continue, that uh, this episode does feature, as does the movie, uh, discussions of sexual violence, of uh, essentially rape, and uh, some very uh, some very difficult themes therein, the 1970s and 80s porn industry. So there's, there's a lot to unpack there and a lot of stuff that I would feel remiss if we didn't point out at the beginning. So the movie... Uh, as well as this episode might not might not be for everybody, but if you've uh, if you're a fan of the movie or if you uh, you feel that you could approach that material comfortably, then uh, then the rest is for you to check out. And um, the film, uh, as a short run summary, follows the rise and fall of pornographic filmmakers and actors as the glitz and glamour of their 1970s world gives way to addiction, restriction, and chaos as the industry takes a sharp turn early in the 1980s. A lot we're going to get into about this film and uh, a lot that I have notes about because uh, it's a movie that I, I really, really enjoy and would highly recommend to, uh, to those with a taste for it. Christine, I know you've seen it before, uh, so why don't we uh, touch base with how you felt about revisiting it and uh, what your experience in, with the movie has been before. Um, yeah, so I actually, <laughs> I guess I pattern, I, I like to like watch a lot of movies by the same director all in like one chunk because two year or a year and a half ago, I decided to like watch all of P.T. Anderson's movies, except I realized I didn't, I didn't watch Hard Eight. I have never mm. seen Hard Eight, but I started with Boogie Nights and went to Phantom Thread. Um, and I think revisiting it this watch, I think I was looking at it 
from the perspective of kind of a, a found family narrative, which I hadn't really considered uh, before watching it. Uh, it's like a found family story, but also with the complications as you've sort of laid out, Dave, of like dis- discussions of consent, of body autonomy, power, sexual abuse. And so I, I, I find it interesting to think about a lot of the main characters as being this this family of adults dealing with these really complicated uh, dynamics and what it means for the individual characters. And I think I think revisiting it, I I mean, I love I love everyone's perform. I think what I love about this movie is just watching so this cast of um, character, this ensemble cast, many of the actors at the beginning of their careers, and watching them interact with one another, and knowing that they'll go on to do uh, to do great things. And I think P.T. Anderson handles an ensemble cast really well. And in their interweaving narratives. But I, I think, in short, the thing that uh, really stood out to me that was kind of a new way of looking at the movie for, for me as a viewer was kind of that complicated uh, found family narrative. So that's what I'll say. Big time. And I pick up that thread uh, the more and more that I've watched it. Yeah. So I'd agree on that front. Um, this uh, is also Connor and Sam's first time seeing this movie. Uh, so very interested to see what you guys think. Why don't you give us a, a short run uh, synopsis of how the first watch went with uh, Boogie Nights from P.T. Anderson. I really enjoyed this movie. There Would Be Blood is the only other P.T. Anderson movie I watched. So it was kind of interesting watching something uh, 10 years later his career and like kind of the stylistic similarities between the two films. Um, and I know we'll talk all about his style and how he composes shots. You know, um, but I was also kind of taken away with how this is a movie about movie making, which I think is always something really interesting and in how it gets into a lot of like, it doesn't like weigh down ever weigh the movie down, but gets into like technical aspects of filmmaking or what makes a movie good, what draws an audience in the importance and the power um, that film can have was an interesting kind of sub theme um, that I didn't see coming. Uh, Marky Mark took me a little bit to win over, um, but by the time he like enters that world, uh, that I really think enjoyed his performance. But it took me a little bit to warm up to him as because he's I don't know he's not a, he's not great in general, <laughs> um, but I thought he was a really um, pretty great in Boogie Nights. It was a nice surprise. All right, and that brings us then to Sam. Sam. How did uh, how did Boogie Nights go? I honestly don't even know. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so Connor, when you were like, "Oh, it's going to be a really hard opinion," I was like, "I actually, I, I don't know," and I think that this is one of the first times I'm experiencing something and have said to myself. I'm going to wait to form if I liked it, if I didn't, after I hear why Dave picked this. So not that there's like a lot weighing on this episode, but like maybe there is. Um, But what I will say is that every time we spoke about Boogie Nights by P.T. Anderson, I heard you. But what I was picturing was Night at the Roxbury, directed by Wes Anderson. Oh, I see. (laughs) Imagine when I was hit with, no, that's not it, on both accounts. I was both surprised and relieved. So (laughs) (laughs) right off the bat, 
I was like, well, this is already better than what I was imagining. So, whoo! <laughs> um, yeah, I think that that's a relief if that is your is your going in expectation. Yeah, big relief. I don't know how or why that happened, but it it did. <laughs> um, I like to ca- uh, to claim temporary insanity. I'm fine now. Um, so I am very interested to see why this Dave was the movie you picked for PT Anderson, and also Connor. Uh, what is the be- hold on actually wait so i guess and i mean this sincerely i know what this qu- i know what this is going to sound like and i don't mean it to be a bitch um <laughs> why was this a story that needed to be told like that that's something i i hope that i i can learn by our discussion um but then connor wh- what what is your beef with mark Wahlberg? what is everyone's beef with Ma- mark Wahlberg? i don't like him i don't get it uh, but but like what like true like i'm i'm fine with being like oh fuck this guy but like what what is the beef well i mean before his like acting career took out and i don't know what in what year relation wise when the when boogie nights took place but he was convicted of assaulting someone when he was uh like a young person uh i believe assaulting someone of vietnamese descent and it was uh, not really, I guess he, yeah. Uh, and that only came to light like later on in his career. Uh, but so, and I think yeah, filled he, he some partially gaps blinded in, a, a Vietnamese man in a hate crime. It was partially, okay, partially blind. Yeah. So like, Dave, you have the specifics on it. Um, and it's kind of it. That's all there really is to say. Can and I, so is, is is there more? Because, like, you know, given the work that we do, first of all, I'm not making any excuses for that, like, literally at all. Mm-hmm. But, like, also, as we talk about in our line of work a lot, you don't want to be known for the worst thing you've ever done. Sure. If there is more, then, like, I am happy to hear it. Because, like, that is not a good thing for someone to have done at all. Well, I think you're asking a really good question, Sam, and I feel like we would all have to, I think, maybe with more specificity uh do the research and under and pick through that and I, yeah i think you definitely uh bring up an important point i think it's also an accumulation of maybe his like other things that he's you know what i'm not going to make any sweeping generalizations that was the only specific i had and we can return yeah i think it's we could return to this <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's also the whole thing. I guess he was going to be on one of the uh, the the flights that uh, that was hijacked on 9/11, and then came out afterwards saying like something to the effect of like, "Yo, bro, if it was me on that plane, you bet I would have dealt with that. That would have gone down differently, bro." And this is like, ah, shut up. And also, I don't think he's a good actor. <laughs> I, I think he's great yeah. in this, but I don't think he's a good. Oh, actor. I love him in I Heart Huckabees. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's okay in that. Too. So wonderful. He can, he can because be he's on point. Acting, yeah. I think when he acts against type is when a director can pull out a funny perform. I guess he's not really acting against type in Boogie Nights. I think P.T. Anderson finds a wonderful way of looking at Mark Wahlberg as this like young puppy dog craving fame. Well, that's, <laughs> that's sort of probably thing. what he was. I mean, that's sort of the thing too. He At the time he was like a, a member of a semi-popular hip hop group, um, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Um, was also a Calvin Klein underwear model. So if he was cast for type, then that's the type he was cast for at the time. 
I guess like, I don't know, maybe I have like a, like a tenderness for him because I love The Departed so much. And like, I, like there's so much there with like Matt Damon and I hated Matt Damon for a while because of that movie and like, and w- whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, fair enough, if he's a bad actor, I think that's enough reason to not like him. <laughs> I think that's fine. Um, but Butter With That Fam, if you've got more deeds on why we shouldn't, I don't, I don't like the idea of cancel culture. Like, I think that as folks who believe in like second chances and believe in giving people a first chance, like that's not something that I, I want to keep, keep moving forward anymore. But if you have things that I should, or we all should know to take into consideration when we think about this man, like I, I would really appreciate to hear that. Yeah. And also, I mean, full disclosure, we're talking uh, P.T. Anderson, who we've, you know, addressed at the onset with uh, with some things there. So, uh, you know, obviously uh, discussing uh, uh, art can sometimes be challenging. And uh, I think this is uh, the movie we're discussing here is a good example of that. So I suppose we'll start getting into uh, kind of the nitty gritty of Boogie Nights. It boasts a huge ensemble cast that featuring Mark Wahlberg, as we've discussed, Burt Reynolds, Julianne Moore, John C. Riley, Heather Graham, Don Cheadle, William H. Macy, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Louise Guzman, just to name a few, a lot of whom are familiar faces throughout Anderson's filmography and through other great films of the era. Uh, the movie has a runtime of two hours and 36 minutes, so pretty lengthy film. Um, I think, as we'll cover throughout, like Goodfellas, it, for me, really moves via the pace of its editing. But it was originally going to be a uh, three-plus-hour movie rated NC-17. That, at least uh, in Anderson's original interpretation and vision for the movie, it was actually a new line executive, uh, Michael DeLuca, who kind of talked him off the ledge as far as that vision for the project goes, and suggesting that it either be under three hours or be R-rated, both of which it wound up being. It was released in 97, and it was in the running for Best Supporting Actor and Actress, as well as Best Original Screenplay at the 70th Academy Awards. Received pretty universal acclaim at the time, um, and at, as of now, uh, it sits at a 93% approval rating with an average of 8.1 out of 10 on review aggregator Rotten Tomatoes. And as it stands, uh, I think it may be, other than There Will Be Blood, perhaps the best uh, introduction to uh, P.T. Anderson's work, which is why I picked it. Um, Phantom Thread is the best P.T. Anderson movie in my mind, but... <laughs> I agree that it's... I think that is objectively his best movie. I and he, I learned... I didn't realize he didn't have a credited cin- cinematographer for that movie. So he oversaw basically all aspects of that movie. Anyhow, that's mm-hmm. a side note. Let's... We can stay focused. <laughs> yeah, I have a... I, I could provide a ranking at the end if I have to, because I've already thought about it a lot. But as far as Boogie Nights, uh, let's uh, let's sink our teeth in because there's, I have a hell of a lot to cover. I think these are the most notes I've ever written for an episode. So as good a place as any to start is uh, the beginning of the film, uh, which actually starts uh, on a hold on a black screen as a sort of melancholic uh, organ dirge sets in as uh, kind of an ominous tone. It holds on this for, I think, a little over a minute before it launches us into a stellar first sequence at the Hot Tracks Club. We get the title Boogie Nights emblazoned on a marquee in a crane shot that seamlessly becomes a steady cam walking into the club following arriving porn director Jack Horner, played by Burt Reynolds, and porn actress Amber Waves, uh, that being Julianne Moore. Uh, inside, the tracking shot continues, introducing us to our characters as they celebrate the night out. Uh, including a circular tracking pan around some of our key figures' disco dancing. For me, there's there's just such an incredible warmth to this sequence, especially as conveyed by the movement of the camera. <laughs> it's a really good way of setting the stage. 
uh, for the story and our characters that these are the good times. So how do we feel about uh, that opening shot? I think it's one of the more impressive shots in the movie, personally. I think that opening shot does a really great job of establishing this as an ensemble film, as in Christine, you brought up, you know, found family of like, this is a community that we're going to watch over the course of two and a half hours, uh, rise and fall, some rise again, some fall forever. Uh, but this was, I think a really great show offy beginning. We can call it that. It's a, it's a big way oh, yeah. for Anderson to show off. Look how impressive my filmmaking is and you're going to enjoy it for two and a half hours, theoretically. Um, so while it is very showy offy, he, he's got the chops to pull it off. So it is, I think, a wonderful introduction to the world of the golden era of pornography and P.T. Anderson's Boogie Nights. I think that choice to have the somber music against the, the blank screen mm-hmm. and then transition into the like really upbeat like disco track was such a like such a great choice because then he returns to that theme later, right? Yes. Isn't that the organ that it returns later? At the very end. As Connor mentions, once we've watched this ascent and descent uh, of all these characters. So that was a detail I had I had forgotten and thought my sound wasn't working or like my <laughs> speakers weren't working properly at first. So I was like, oh, right. Decision. Very uh considered decision <laughs> throws you off too a little with streaming platforms in the sense that it's just a black screen for without credits for about a minute yeah i also like really appreciated it too because i i liked being introduced to all of our major players <laughs> like right in the very beginning it was like oh, okay cool i know what to expect but also it immediately started to put me on edge because I felt like I was constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I think this movie does a really fantastic job of being like, is this the moment? Okay, certainly it's going to happen now. Okay, well then when is it go? Oh, oh, okay, okay. And it just starts almost immediately. Yeah, I agree, Sam. It does have a, a really hard pull of like tension and release throughout this movie. So that br- then brings us to um, some details about production that Anderson actually accredits the sequence and its style to um, the cabana entrance scene in Goodfellas. Scorsese's iconic shot that we've discussed before, that sort of like long tracking pan. Uh, Scorsese's got him beat in terms of length. That was a three minute and three second shot. This one is two minutes and 53 seconds. Uh, so an additional 10 seconds there to um, Scorsese's credit. Although I think the scene... I don't know. I, 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 I would say it rivals, uh, rivals that one-shot sequence as well. I, so, I think what came to mind when watching this movie and like my educational background is theater is that this movie feels very theatrical. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would be so curious to see what Boogie Nights would look like as a musical because it really <laughs> does feel like it has... I, don't, like, I haven't thought too much about like structure of a musical, but in terms mm-hmm. of like the heightened emotions and then characters breaking out in the song, it just feels like there's a lot of that, like we talked about the push and pull of like these big moments and then slower moments where the dialogue happens, building back up to big moments where songs happen. And yeah. choreographed moments. I mean, we were talking a lot in the last episode about like choreography and Pride and Prejudice, but like <laughs> the two-minute dancing sequence, or I don't know if it's two, maybe a minute and a half, but uh, where Mark Wahlberg and all the whole, or like a bulk of the cast are all dancing together in a really wonderfully timed and choreographed dance sequence. I, that's like one of my favorite <laughs> scenes because <laughs> they all look so good. But yeah, I, I totally agree, Connor, that the the energy 
and the and the blocking and the staging of the movie could definitely lend itself to like a colorful theatrical or like musical or theatrical performance. Well, it even has that theme of like, "Mom, you'll never believe in me. I'm gonna go be a star." Yeah, kind of energy, <laughs> um, but totally not normal career path stardom that uh, Mark Wahlberg's going to follow. Well, and speaking of Wahlberg, this is when we first meet Eddie Adams. Um, that, of course, uh, Mark Wahlberg, who is a dishwasher at Hot Tracks, <clears throat> the club that uh, everyone frequents. It was originally going to be Leo DiCaprio, uh, but he chose instead Titanic, uh, which, you know, pretty much cemented his career outside of like the Basketball Diaries, which is great. In, but his early career was pretty much uh, established with that choice, although he was quick to recommend Marky Mark for the role. I would kill to see... Leo as Dirk Diggler. <laughs> I think that would have been such a great choice. But yeah, a parallel universe. I do think, yeah, as I said before, I'm not uh, typically the biggest fan of Mark Wahlberg's performances, but I do think, I don't know, he 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 comes into his own with this role. I think he really nails it. Leonardo DiCaprio was also supposed to play the lead role in The Mummy. So he had some really choice movies hmm. that he turned down. Very interesting. He has no business being in. I can't imagine him being in the in the Mummy. No, uh, but Boogie Nights, I could definitely imagine him being in. Well, we see uh, Eddie Adams. He and he meets uh, Jack, the uh, aforementioned adult film director, as they lock eyes from across the club. They uh, then meet in the kitchen, and uh, Eddie, of course, offers to um, show him his, let's say, talent. Um, and it's clear from this exchange that Eddie's used to this routine and Jack, uh, taken by his confidence, assures Eddie that he knows, quote, there's something amazing in those jeans just waiting to get out. I love how the steady cam is shaky and rough in the sequence because it kind of highlights Eddie's youthful nervousness and also the impact that this meeting would have on Jack's character. So I think it's a really nice, subtle touch. I like the combination of subtlety, but also there's some moments that are so unsubtle and I feel like mm-hmm. are wonderful sort of parody or like sort of wonderful clues to what will later be parodied in like the porn parodies that the movie has so much fun creating. Like mm-hmm. the moments when Jack is looking at Eddie from across, like it's so unsubtle. Yeah, okay, yeah. Like, Eddie is like clearing the dishes and he's like looking at him and they're making eyes and they're making eyes back and forth. And like, in some way, I don't see that necessarily as like a subtle, t- as a subtle touch, but as a really sort of funny, overacted moment. But that's very intentional. Yeah, I could see that. Which I think is is a tone of the movie. It goes from like subtle moments and very sort of uh, restrained performance to something that's like totally absurd and satirical and. Like, also, depending on the character, um, some people it, are just full on, steam yeah. the whole time. Yeah, we'll get to Alfred Molina eventually. <laughs> well, and I think it, that's just another example of like heightening when appropriate. Of like, mm-hmm. I imagine that scene where they're locking eyes across the um, club. Of like, you know, the dance in a, in a, on the stage, dancing's happening. Then it freezes. Spotlights on both of them. Dancing resumes. Spotlight. You know, so it's. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how intentional the theatricalness of it is, but to me, that's just I don't know. I'll probably bring that up a few times, but that's just really 
uh, a powerful momentum that he was tapping into. No, you're totally right, though, Connor. I could see this if this was a musical. Hmm. There would be the ensemble cast, but then there would be pushed back to the wings and there'd be two spotlights, like one on Jack, one on Eddie. And they're like looking, looking and like making I eye- the dishwasher. Yes! <laughs> Connor, I think it might be up to you to translate this and take on the impossible challenge. Connor Feeney's Boogie Nights. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so good. <laughs> A one man musical. <laughs> well, I love the sequence that we get that follows this a lot as well. Um, we kind of get some insight into these characters' state of affairs after the club closes via this montage. Um, Jack and Amber return to his house where he pensively and quietly fixes himself a drink. Amber, after a few lines, is on the phone with her ex-husband pleading to speak with her son during a mounting custody battle. We get little Bill, uh, Jack's assistant director, played by William H. Macy who just can't seem to catch a break, uh, returning to his house to find his wife, a porn actor herself, played by Nina Hurley, by the way, an actual porn actor, having sex with young stud, and she dismissively waves him off so she can continue. Bill's sort of defeated response indicates something of a sordid routine at play here. Uh, we meet Buck Swope, another porn actor played by Don Cheadle, who's uh, struggling to sell stereo equipment at a tie-fi store with uh, this sort of like tired already even the 1970s tired like packaged cowboy persona um we get a little bit of info on roller girl as she's known another porn actor played by heather graham who's attending high school where she's bullied and harassed by her male classmates who seem aware of her career and in this sense they all seem to be kind of stuck and waiting for something and as it turns out, in a sense, that something is Eddie, uh, who returns home. Uh, we get his home life in a very uh, Kubrick tracking pan of his room. We see various posters of Bruce Lee, Farrah Fawcett, Corvettes, and so on. But we also learn that his home life is uh, pretty taut and pretty tense, with a seemingly checked out father and an overbearing, if not abusive, mother chastising him for his line of work, his lack of education, and his sexual flings with a neighborhood girl. By the way, we get some insight into that uh, post-coital sequence with the two of them, uh, that being Eddie and uh, this girl, uh, which is filmed at a low angle shot through Eddie's legs as she's staring admiringly up at his talent, which I'm going to just keep saying talent for for the sake of conversation. Um, but I, I really adore that shot, and I really adore a lot of what goes on in that montage, establishing that these characters are yet waiting for a kind of missing ingredient that will spark their lives into motion. I think the family dynamics are really interesting. And I know we need to like get rid of the family so the rest of the plot can happen. But I would love, like, I just, I think that the mom, dad, Marky Mark, um, I just thought made like a really interesting trio and like just kind of how like fucked up that house is. And like, I would be interested in seeing more of what those kind of like interpersonal relationships look like because that breakfast scene is like so tense of like people, like the husband father goes to kiss the mom and he's like you should shave if you're gonna kiss me you're gonna scratch my face and like Mm -hmm. the way like breakfast is set up i don't know like the tension in the house is just like just drawn out enough to just be like what is like this house is ready to explode yeah but i think you get that without needing more information for me and i think it sets up as you said, like Connor, they have to get rid of the family to then build a new one later in the story. But I also think those scenes set up contrasts in Dur- in Eddie or Dirk's life of what a loving relationship looks like and what one does, like what 
a not loving relationship looks like. Cause I think that there's definitely a specific, if not complicated relationship he has with Julianne Moore's character. But like you have those scenes where he's like, cry, like she's basically comforting him in this maternal way. Uh, and he's crying in her lap later on when things aren't working out for him and things like that. And so I think these family scenes are there to set up contrasts between his relationship with his parents and his relationship with Jack um, and Amber. Albeit, yeah, they're his very complicated relationships with Jack and Amber. But but yeah, I, I think it sets it up. It sets it up well. But maybe the sitcom that never was is Eddie and his parents. <laughs> But that's where I like I start to get a little confused because it felt like these were just caricatures of like real people because the the mother was just absolutely out of her mind with how she reacted to a few things and and maybe I was missing some stuff like that's totally fine but it just felt like you know, to yell at her husband in that way, uh, like as soon as the movie opens, basically. And then the the ranting and raving she was doing when he was coming home to be like ripping posters off the wall. I, like, I mean, there are abusive families out there. Right. And like, I told, I do, I do see that, believe me. But I also, like, it just seemed completely from nowhere like I, I I thought that I would need a little bit more to establish that this was actually real and not like this caricature um but then you know the movie continues and you're like well okay anyway so I suppose it doesn't matter well I think it also comes back to like I think there are some exaggerated moments but like I think it kind of connects to what we were talking about before in that the movie swings back and forth between moments of of subtlety and then moments of staged whether it's absurdity or staged overacting or things like that which i think is in some way like an intentional back and forth between those those modes and i also saw that play out in that scene especially when marky mark or like marky mark <laughs> Mark Wahlberg is... I'm going to make that mistake a couple times. <laughs> Whatever. Is, is like... He's almost playing a parody of like an adolescent boy in his performance. Mm-hmm. Like when he's yelling and crying and you see the spit dribbling from his mouth. I mean, it's a wonderful performance, but it made me just laugh out loud to watch him yelling at his mother. And I think, but it also, the scene holds a lot of like seriousness in the fact that they have a fractured relationship. Yeah. And so we haven't gotten to that scene quite yet. That's actually the oh, scene. Oh, sorry. I'm next... just bumping. No, that's okay. <laughs> um, just before this all happens, I mean, before this big row that we're talking about, uh, before that, uh, back at Hot Tracks, Jack sends Roller Girl off to see what all the fuss is about with Eddie. And she has the same kind of response that we keep seeing throughout the movie um, when she goes to uh, to check him out, in a sense. His fly goes down, and the blocking is such that we don't see anything, but we see the character's reaction uh, as it goes from a kind of surprise to a kind of quiet, smiling awe <laughs> that um, that is repeated a lot of times throughout the movie. Um, it's kind of then that Jack officially welcomes Eddie into uh, the industry, and uh, they go to this diner. It is... Um, Jack, Roller Girl, Amber, and Eddie are all there in the diner. And the camera does some really cool stuff here where uh, throughout the panning, it, it stops 
to rest on certain characters as they both speak and listen to Jack as he paints a picture of his intentions. Uh, Jack wants to make porn that leaves the viewers both sexually and artistically satisfied. He wants to make films and he wants to make art. One of my favorite running gags is the the reaction to um, Eddie's talent. Yeah. Uh, the Colonel, and we'll get to, you know, when he's at the house, who finances That's it. That's a big a, one. That's a great, just like, it's kind of like a monster movie. Where like the monster's hidden, you know, the, the right. perspective is like what your, how your imagination thinks what the talent looks like. Yeah, which is why I really love the end of this movie, which we'll get to, obviously. Um, but uh, then we, uh, we sort of get a, a, little, a little segue where um, Jack is watching uh, Eddie in action, so to speak, sort of auditioning. Um, with Roller Girl. And I really love this sequence because we we don't really see any of the sex act. We just pan in on Jack uh, watching without lust or pleasure, really, but as a director. Um, and we come to understand Amber's role a little bit. After she's gone to bed, Jack describes her to Eddie as, uh, as we discussed before, a mother to all of those that need love. Um, so her character becomes uh, really important in that sense. And at a time when Eddie could use a little bit of uh, motherly love because he returns uh, home, as we've discussed uh, where his mother rages at him, tearing down his posters and screaming at some of the dialogue here. What are you going to do? You're not going to be anything. You're a loser. You'll always be a loser. You think this is your stuff? This isn't your stuff because you didn't pay for it, stupid. You leave here. You leave here with what you've got. Nothing. Uh, Eddie in tears shouts back, you don't know what I can do. You don't know what I can do or what I'm going to be. I'm good. I have good things that you don't know about, and I'm going to be something. I am. And don't tell me that I'm not going to be. Uh, the camera is frantic in the sequence, except when offering a tracking pan toward Eddie's father's face as he sits quietly listening on the edge of the bed with a uh, prominently displayed crucifix hung in the wall behind him. Uh, Eddie storms out and his mother slams the door after him, pretty much closing the door on this dynamic and the family throughout the remainder of the film. One thing that was uh, noted was when interviewed about the sequence and if it related to Anderson's uh, reportedly troubled relationship with his own mother, he went very quiet. So clearly the scene means a lot to him. Yeah, I mean, like, I think, fam- yeah, I, I think you mentioned this at the beginning, Dave, but like the through lines of of family dynamic playing out in a lot of his movies, uh, like Magnolia, which followed this oh, yeah. a lot about like father son relationships. So it definitely is interesting to to see those those dynamics playing out here as well. And then, yeah, that sort of launches us into what becomes Eddie's new family and uh, Eddie being introduced into Jack's world which uh, is a sequence that I totally adore because there's, it's another one of those uh, sequences with some of Anderson's early iconic tracking shots, the long extended take where it kind of makes its way through a space. In this sense, it's uh, Jack welcoming uh, Eddie into, uh, into this party. Uh, Eddie meets Reed Rothschild, a porn actor played by John C. Riley. And their dynamic is apparent pretty much right away. Reed kind of peacocking and posturing with conversation about how much he can bench and uh, his supposed resemblance to Han Solo. John C. Riley in this movie. He's my favorite part he's of great. this whole movie. He's he so is good in it. so wonderful. And I, he's, he's a gem like across the board. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he, he gets, well, maybe everyone loves, I don't know. Do you guys like John C. Riley? Oh, yeah. Um, but I feel like this is a wonderful example of a comedian at the beginning of his career but in no way is his talent less because this is like a breakout role for him. It's like, you are like, no, this is a comedic shining star. Who's just going to like keep shining for his career, like his entire career. 
Yeah, and I mean, I guess... I or maybe think, it's the height of his career. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I always think of his early career as doing, like, more kind of, like, tongue-in-cheek dramedies. Um, so there is comedy involved, but he is, he's, a, he's a pretty good dramatic actor and does a good job while being comedic at, at being dramatic in this movie, I think. I think it's just sort of like an Adam Scott trajectory where, like, he was an actor that was trying a lot of different things and then got sort of, like vacuumed into the world of comedy and found a very comfortable place within it. What dramas was he in like around this time? Uh, he was in this. He was also in um, a movie called The The Good Girl, which is a Mike oh, Black yeah. movie. I mean... I mean, like, yeah, it was Chicago. He's in Chicago or, or not too long but this after is, here. this is before Chicago and I think before Good Girl. Yeah, he plays a sad character in Good Girl. But anyhow, I don't <laughs> I don't want to make it the John C. Riley show, but I will say and Magnolia, that I, guess I absolutely and I, I'll save my one note for the scene later. Oh. But. <laughs> okay. Well, we also see then uh, while they're talking, Roller Girl rolls up, as she always does. She's always wearing her roller skates, as we know, um, and takes a Polaroid of uh, the two of them standing together. This being a big signifier that this will be looked back on fondly after things go sour, uh, sort of the remembered good times. So this is is this still like things at their peak? Things are coming together. We do see the character of Buck get into an argument with Becky, another porn actor, about his image and falling out of touch. We have this wonderful shot following a woman diving into Jack's pool. And this is kind of a reference and homage to a scene from a film called I Am Cuba, which is a relatively obscure film from 1964, which kind of further showcases Anderson's depth of cinema history. As she jumps into the water, the camera follows and the music actually becomes clearer and louder while she's submerged, which is a really cool hypnotic directorial flair that I'm always drawn to. And that always really stands out in the sequence for me. There, there's so many characters that we still have left to touch on, which is great. And I was just curious what the group thought of Heather Graham as Roller Girl. Because I, I, I don't quite know how to feel about this character and how it was written and her roles in the movie. So I was just kind of curious what you guys, what your thoughts were on her in this film. I feel like almost every character down to characters we only see one or two times are extremely developed in this movie. Perhaps with the exception of Roller Girl. Roller Girl is kind of the one where it does feel a little bit more archetypal than it does grounded in the same uh, established and thoroughly explored humanity as the other characters. Although there are some moments where, I mean, she has her due as well. It just, those moments just happen to be horrifying and they're toward the end. Yeah, definitely revisiting this movie. I had, I, I also was like, how am I feeling about, about Roller Girl? And I think I, I love this movie because it's it's not the way P.T. Anderson approaches the thematic material. It's obviously not a castigation of the porn industry. I think he really lovingly mm-hmm. depicts all of the characters or, or tries to lovingly depict all of the characters that we see. But I think questions of like agency, especially within the female characters, is like something I really was really thinking about uh, I think Julianne Moore's character, I think we see a lot more facets of her life as far as like later on when we see her in like a custody battle, like over her child, like really wanting to like reestablish a relationship with her kid. And we see so many different things. And like we see the trajectory of her life as like, this is her art. I mean, she's chosen to be a star in uh, like the porn industry and she derives like artistic 
this is like an artistic endeavor. And we see those aspects of that while she's also trying to like, you know, re like get that relationship with her son. I think I, it's like the one scene we get of roller girl outside the context of the other character, like Jack's world is in, is in high school. And I don't know if that gave me enough to really feel like I know how much agency she was really, she really had and was endowed especially once we see that horrific scene of, yeah, that ex of exploitation and sexual assault while Jack, yeah, we'll get into that later, but right. that's a long way of saying, I still don't know how I feel about roller girl. I think Heather Graham's performance is really like, she, you know, she's, she's uh, fun to watch, but I think, I don't know if the story does enough to really support her. Yeah. I think I'd agree with that. And also speaking of uh, Julianne Moore's character, Amber, Amber's son calls the party that they're at, but the party goers know her as Amber. So when her son calls to speak uh, to her by her name, uh, the call gets dropped while we see Amber doing rails and staring transfixed at Eddie while he dives in slow motion, highlighting her admiration and the sort of strange motherly affections that develop. We also meet the colonel, uh, which is Jack's producer and financier, who with a really commanding introduction in this movie, stylistically, it's, it's just a sort of these um, almost like cascading shots of him rising into this light from out of this car, out of this limo that he's driven to the party to, and is pretty clearly established within this world, which we're being treated to uh, as a really powerful figure and something of a magnate. And then meanwhile, Lil Bill's wife is uh, having sex with a man in the driveway before a crowd of onlookers. And uh, most of those onlookers, like his wife, tell him to uh, shut up and buzz off when he approaches. While he walks off, there's a hilarious interaction with Kurt, Jack's cameraman, who is clearly oblivious to the dismay that uh, Macy is in while he pesters him about an upcoming shoot until uh, little Bill hilariously snaps, Kurt, that's my wife down there in the driveway with an ass in her cock. I am I sorry if my thoughts aren't on the production of the film tomorrow. That juxtaposition is... is wild like them just talking about all the technical aspects of like what the shoot is gonna look like tomorrow <laughs> and William H. Macy is like I can't think about this right now <laughs> but it like I think Connor you mentioned this at the beginning it's like it's a movie about making movies and it's it's a wonderful setup to like see crew just like talking through all of the very mundane technical aspects and then like <laughs> juxtaposed with like people in the act of sex, like right behind them. <laughs> While also illustrating how often this is something William H. Macy has experienced in the presence of uh, people he's supposed to be a professional among and everything and how, uh, how flippantly it's taken and uh, the consequences that, uh, that it has that we'll discover shortly. But before then, the, the colonel, he's, he's brought a young girl to the party who ODs with another young actor. And the colonel kind of coldly has her whisked away as though this is sort of a dark behind the scenes routine within this community, which is pretty intense and pretty telling. Um, the men carry her out and she passes by. They pass by um, Scotty, Jack's boom operator, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, who the camera follows as he spots Dirk with the camera literally panholing in on Dirk, expressing Scotty's infatuation. I would say that's our Keanu zoom shot for this one because uh, it pinholes just the one and only time. Uh, and it's very pronounced. Yeah, what, what, a, what an interesting cast of characters that we all get to meet you know, at this party. And I think this does such an efficient job in the first this is what the first, like, not even 30 minutes of the movie? It's right around 30, yeah. So I think within 30 minutes, you know who all the principal players are, um, get a sense of who they are and kind of what they want 
um, or that will come shortly thereafter. So I think a very wisely used first 30 minutes of a two and a half hour movie. Yeah. And then we also do, um, we do have, I mean, Eddie meeting all these people as are we. So it's a really nice, convenient way of introduction, introducing everyone without too much expository dialogue. Which takes us back to Austin. Austin knew that having a scene at a party, Austin, I mean, Jane Austen, hearkening <laughs> back to our previous episode. No, but I think, I think I was thinking about while watching Boogie Nights, having just talked about Pride and Prejudice, the vital space in a movie that a party, like the vital space that a party is, whether it's very um, uh, composed Austin dancing or it's like a fucking rager like at <laughs> at this rich person's house in Los Angeles in the 1970s. But like for storytelling purposes, having like nailing in a movie a party where characters are interacting with uh, one another is such like a wonderful way of like not only introducing people, but with, with a very, a very streamlined uh, manner, like introducing character dynamics without a bunch, like a a whole bunch of like expository dialogue. Yeah. It's definitely a good time saver. We also have Connor at the moment that you, you were referencing earlier where he meets the Colonel and it's another one of those great moments where, um, you know, he, he asks if he can see what's up with Eddie. Eddie drops his drawers and uh, there's this, this really great, you know, this really great hold of obviously on the Colonel's face as he goes through, you know, but the by now familiar rotation of um, shock and then, you know, surprise and satisfaction um, with him looking up at the end with a smile on his face that says like, he know, he sees struck gold uh, via this figure. Then in the hot tub, uh, just shortly after the party, Eddie and Reed and Jack are hanging out and, uh, Eddie at the Colonel's suggestion is like, you know, Jack, I think I have a name. Like, I think I want to, I think I want to blaze this new trail, uh, with this being my established persona within the industry. And like, I want it to be, uh, he says he wants it to be so powerful that it could cl- cut glass, you know, razor sharp. This name is so bright and so sharp that it just blows up because the name is so powerful. And then we see this brilliant purple neon sign that spells out in a nice cursive and him first donning the name Dirk Diggler. And uh, it, as he says, it's such a powerful name that the neon sign itself explodes before our eyes. With that, Jack adds, um, I think heaven has sent you here, Dirk Diggler. I think the angels have blessed us all with your presence. And with that, the missing ingredient from Jack's artistic orbit and their found family is complete. Another great moment in this tub scene is, I'm pretty sure this is when this happens, when John C. Riley's character shares a song that he's working His on. His poem. His poem, and I have it right here. Oh, good, Because good. listeners need to know what uh, pure gold has come from his lips. Um, it's He's like, so I, I'm like working through this new material. And I, yeah, it's just like some song I've like come up with. And it goes, I love you. You love me. Going down the sugar tree. We'll go down the sugar tree and see lots of bees. bees. Playing, playing, but the bees won't sting because you love me. (laughs) And Eddie, now Dirk is like, that's good. That's good. He's so supportive. (laughs) Yeah. My favorite scene. (laughs) There's a lot. The movie leans a lot for a lot of levity on Riley's character on Reed uh, throughout the movie. Um, 
Although it shows humor in throughout, but yeah, he's definitely kind of like the big driving force of the film's humor in a lot of ways. And next up is Dirk's first shoot. And um, he goes by Dirk now as he requests during the shoot throughout the episode. Now he'll henceforth be referred to as Dirk. The whole production atmosphere is captured via moving Steadicam, which creates a very making of behind the scenes feel. Uh, after some time preparing before the mirror in his dressing room, which becomes uh, something of a routine for Dirk, he emerges on set confident but nervous to a reassuring Jack and Amber. The camera holds on both Dirk and Amber discussing the scene they're going to shoot rather than going for a standard conversational two shot, uh, I think, because it enhances the intimacy of that moment. They then shoot and were treated to the grainy footage of the two actors reading their lines, um, including Amber's barn burner of a bad porn line, I think you have the job, but let me make sure of something. This is a giant cock, which gets me every time. And it also is dialogue pulled from of era pornography combed over by Anderson in preparation for the film, who is maybe the only person with the legitimate claim that they only watch porn for the stories. <laughs> There's throughout the theme with Eddie and I think some other characters, the idea of reflection and looking in the mirror. And I don't really have a fully formed thought on this, but I wonder if it's like, the idea of like Eddie gets his self-confidence or like his belief from how he looks, from his talent. Um, I don't know if like, cause there's a lot of shots and moments of Eddie looking in the mirror, uh, like in his bedroom in the beginning of the movie, he's like doing like Bruce Lee Kung Fu moves. Um, the movie, you know, there's a mirror shot where he's in the seventies and his first shoot, we just talked about looking in the mirror, reciting his lines that's mirrored at the end when he's doing drugs in the eighties, he's looking in the mirror, trying to use his talent. So I just wonder like, I don't really have a fully formed thought, but I think this idea of like mirrors or reflection, he has a mirror put on the ceiling of his new house later in the movie. Um, so I don't know if anybody, I don't know, Dave, if you had any kind of thoughts or notes on that, but it's just a detail that I noticed appears like six times, you know, half a dozen times throughout the movie. I mean, I think it's just sort of a process of psyching himself up that is repeated um, throughout the movie to varying degrees of success as we'll cover. But um yeah, it's definitely, it definitely seems like sort of like one of his like routines or like one of his, um, one of those like almost like superstitious acting, a an actor prepares moments or something. I think it also might have to do with like the power of like persona. And I think this mm. movie handles the personas of all of its characters really well. It's like we're already following the lives of characters that have like, that exist without, like outside of sort of like, societal conventional norms of like what it means to pursue a regular like a quote-unquote regular uh a job and it's like these characters are inhabiting new names uh like new ways of interacting with one another that exist out like kind of outside of like it's like in, especially in the late 70s early 80s like approved societal like environs and so i think maybe in the mirror like characters looking in the mirror or like being seen through lenses it's like it's a reinforcing of like their inhabited persona once they've chosen for themselves when they reinforce to each other like like this is our life this is our art this is our job like we're just trying to make it happen that's just something that kind of came to mind when you were when you were bringing that up connor yeah, I'll have to consider with that. And it comes up several more times, so it's something that we'll have another couple opportunities to consider. Rounding out the shoot, when Dirk does drop his pants for the scene, we cut away uh, from what we see of uh, the porn that they're shooting. 
Um, and we cut away instead to the crew's kind of like enamored reactions. Some of them literally tilting their heads to be able to fully look at him. If you know what that's implying, um, he and Amber shoot the scene as a kind of quiet awe befalls the crew until they have to change reels. Uh, though the script does call for a climax shot, Amber insists that Dirk finish inside of her. And upon realizing that uh, they still need that money shot, Dirk offers to reshoot the climax again immediately, which gives us a pretty, a pretty nice segue into like that, that obviously he is a performing talent in that sense. Uh, and, uh, and the reviews reflect that. I mean, the next is kind of this whirlwind sequence of flashbulbs and uh, award sequences. We see uh, kind of zoom-ins on uh, descriptions of printed descriptions and um, praise of his work, critical praise of both he and Jack's collaboration. And it's around this time that he decides that uh, they should create a new character uh, that Dirk would embody, uh, that being Brock Landers. That's sort of like James Bond knockoff, uh, but his criticism of uh, those kind of movies or the parodies that exist within the porn industry in that era uh, are that it's not right, it's not cool, and it's not sexy, Jack. And that he and Reed would play partners in the film, Brock Landers and Chester Rockwell. Uh, Jack eats it up, and these films uh, wind up really blowing away the industry and uh, their audience. And uh, at one point, we witness uh, Jack editing down Brock Lander's Angels in My Town, which, though on his face, looks about as cheesy and clumsy as any of the other uh, films within the film that we've seen. Jack regards it as, quote, the film he wants them to remember him by. So it's clear that they feel they're really onto something. Those are so funny. <laughs> him, like, slide, slip sliding on the roof, and then the, mm-hmm. like, very... Um, faint pistol sound like the pistol shots are so soft they sound so small (laughs) it's just a great little little moment but yeah you can tell that they're so proud and like it really feels like they've got a momentum behind them but unfortunately that brings us to new year's eve 1979 uh that a party at jack's house uh with the usual crew um except for one figure that being uh floyd Contoli, uh, who is a competing porn filmmaker and uh, producer, played by Philip Baker Hall, who insists that to, who insists to Jack that uh, amateur actors filmed on tape is the way of the future for the porn industry. Jack's resistant to the idea, saying of videotape that if it looks like shit and sounds like shit, then it must be shit. Elsewhere, Buck meets Jesse, another porn actor, um, whose affections for Dirk have been spurned, and they strike up a bond as the two members of the found family that seem sort of out of sorts with their surroundings. We meet Todd Packer, uh, a friend of Reed's, played by Tom Jane, who strolls in like a bad wind, clearly a dangerous outsider to the group who eyes up Dirk's new car. Uh, Wait a second. I'm so sorry. No, go ahead. This is really important because Thomas Jane is in this movie. Yeah. Tom Jane is is, uh, Todd Packer. Holy shit. I never put this together. And I've seen this movie multiple times. And I love him because he's in The Expanse. Holy shit. Okay, sorry. That is a moment. That is a crucial. It's you, crazy you, because you he's acting. You it live right here. Revelations that my brain is having. I mean, he's acting miles above his other performances in anything else I've ever seen. Both he and, and Wahlberg, I think, are really like in command of their performances in a really stirring way, especially Tom Jane, because I love Tom Jane, but I don't think uh, he's that good. And I don't think he's been in many good things, but I think in this, he's fantastic. He pops up in some weird shit. Like I'm still going to recommend this movie Nemesis because it's bizarre, but he like has a cameo in that. And he's always like 
half dressed, but like, <laughs> okay, this is an amazing revelation because I really enjoyed that character. And now I know why. Okay. Keep going. Sorry, uh, Dave. Especially toward the end of the movie. There's, there's the Todd Packer sequence that uh, I, I totally love, but um, the rest of the party goes with uh, Scotty hoping to impress Dirk showing off a new car that he's bought and then leaning in and trying to kiss him. Dirk perturbed by the whole exchange storms off, leaving Scotty and his now pointless new car weeping. I'm such a fucking idiot over and over and over again. That little micro moment is pretty brutal as brought to life by Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I really appreciate the kind of pathos and sorrow of that moment is really well expressed. I was kind of surprised that that the lack of like, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I just feel like the lack of like homophobia in this movie until like a very specific moment at the end. But I was like really expecting this like lean into like some of those elements when Philip Seymour Hoffman and Scotty goes in to kiss Eddie. Uh, but it really just felt more of like a, I don't want this because right. like it, it's, it wasn't an opportunity to belittle Scotty in like a personal <laughs> way, which I think speaks a lot to Eddie's character of like, he's not like, he is kind of like really the sort of force for good. Like I thought that was going to be a moment to show some darker shades of Eddie's character when it really just would, did not go down that route, which I thought was kind of in a good way, surprised me. Yeah. I mean, it just leaves you with, you know, with Scotty's emotional defeat rather than it being, you know, Dirk telling him off because of his sense of identity or how he, you know, who he's attracted to or whatever. And then we get sort of a, how everything comes to a head uh, at the end of this party. Uh, right before the clock strikes 12, we're treated to a now familiar tracking pan, as we know that is one of PT's big, PTA's big staples and it's used frequently throughout this film. But the thing is it usually implies warmth, at least thus far in this movie. And in this shot, it's kind of suddenly inverted and is unexpectedly weaponized. We follow little Bill through this party looking for his wife, who he finds in the throes of another man again. In the still and broken shot, we follow Bill out to his car and then back down the hall uh, where he shoots his wife and her lover. Anderson recoiled uh, at the first test screening because audience members uh, burst into applause at Bill's actions. So, and so he was so visibly distraught that his friend, recording artist Amy Mann, reached out and took his hand, assuring him, listen, this isn't your fault, which becomes proven because uh, not long after that, Bill, after, after killing the both, walks down the rest of the hallway, addresses the party at hand, uh, smiles, puts the gun in his mouth, and blows his own brains all over the wall behind him, at which point the audience fell deathly silent. So it's obviously very impactful. And it then takes a hard cut to reveal the title card 80s. Not even 1980s, not the 80s in text, just 80s. Um, And it's clear that the good times are coming to a close, if not over, uh, for this movie, as it takes a very stern turn at this point. Um, Also, William H. Macy had a pretty great story about the uh, that sequence, uh, the gore pack that was attached to his head uh, when he goes to fire it, didn't go off correctly the first time. So they had to put him back in makeup and do it all again. And uh, he did it in the second take and pretty much nailed it. But he was away getting, you know, the fake blood and gore washed off of him. And when he returned to the set to see everyone uh, checking it out on the monitors, it was basically just everyone watching it over and over again going, ah, ah, ah. So clearly it looked effective. I was surprised that I didn't, cause that's a huge, gore effect and you it's, mm-hmm. it's a one shot so that was really i thought when he put the gun in his mouth they were going to cut to black but no you see the gore and i was like man how did they where did that pack live in his head below wig or i was that was a technical moment that i was really impressed by yeah dave that has to be one of the most like upsetting tidbits that you've shared that the the theater erupted in applause after yeah yeah like bad theater experience bad audience 
Yeah, I mean, but like to me, that just that is like commentary on not even how much things have changed, because I think that something that we still are dealing with is people who think that sex workers deserve the abuse that they receive at the hands of whoever. And, you know, that's just that's a sorry state of the world. And and I. I am sad to hear that happened, but I am heartened that P.T. Anderson had that kind of response to be like, no, this is not what I wanted. And instead it was supposed to be a little bit like, this is fucked up and not okay. So that you win some and you lose some, I guess. And it's an interesting fine line this movie rides. Um, I think I was talking to you, Connor, about this before, is that like, um, it is a film that one could expect to either be extremely sleazy or extremely romantic and erotic in its its stylization and treatment of that industry. But instead, it's very matter of fact, it runs the middle ground, which is kind of the only way this movie can work, where it is utilitarian, it's about creating a product, and it's about these actors and directors, the lighting people, it's about everyone trying to create a work and treating it as such rather than treating it as extremely sleazy, which it does at one point, which we'll we'll get to, or by contrast, extremely romantic. Um, I, I I think circumnavigating those two and finding the middle ground is is probably the the only way that one could make a movie like this and speaks to the command and restraint that Anderson had while writing the script. I think that's a great way of of summing up the handling of the material. Yeah. Picking up after that, I mean, the first thing that we get uh, following uh, this very dramatic sequence and uh, the real sort of burst of, uh, of violence that we get in the movie, we're treated to Amber's directorial debut, and that's a documentary about Dirk's success. It's an attempt at a loving portrayal of Dirk uh, that proves very revealing. Dirk claims at the time that there's a very fine line in the character I'm playing, I'm Dirk Diggler, and Brock Landers is the character I'm playing. Uh, it reveals, however, that uh, as the Landers series has become increasingly exploitative and misogynistic, as much as the films that it once criticized, Dirk, now long past Eddie Adams, uh, is becoming a different kind of figure, a figure more aligned with the egotism of his Brock Landers character. Um, so it's kind of, it's sort of his, uh, his second transformation within the movie and sets a pretty dark tone for him moving forward. Shortly after this, in a brutal sequence, Jack learns of the Colonel's arrest uh, which then means that his uh, his financing has in effect been cut. Uh, meeting through the visitation glass, we see the colonel stripped of all of his his power and industry magnate status and reduced to an exposed and vulnerable figure. Jack keeps insisting that he confirm he didn't do anything with the girl whose OD brought the police to his home, uh, but the colonel admits that they found something in the house. Uh, and that via his description, pretty clearly implying uh, underage pornography. Yeah, and I think the movie, it's like the first half... It's like we talked a lot about the the parties, the uh, sort of rise of Dirk Diggler, all of the the wonderful glossy aspects of of his life and his rise to fame. And then, as the movie pivots into its second half, we not only get the murder of William H Macy's wife, but also really peeling apart the insidious under like insidious and exploitive aspects of the world in which they exist as well on the and the problems there so i think narratively that's a that's a great um pivot as we as you mentioned dave as we watch dirk diggler also have this sort of personal descent as well i I really love also the way that the scene with the colonel ends um it's the colonel pleading 
with Jack to say that he's his friend when the phone line uh, of the visitation phone line goes dead. Uh, the colonel continues pleading on the other side, silenced by the glass. And that makes it abundantly clear to us as the audience that his fate is sealed and there's nothing more that can be done, which I thought was a really powerful touch uh, in a moment where, you know, it's a character who is uh, not very sympathetic, but is framed at, at the very least in a humanizing way that I think is an impressive balance for a film like this to maintain. Well, I also, I don't know. I, I sort of took away from that scene, not so much a humanizing depiction of that character, but more as a, there are certain lines that Jack will not cross. And oh, well, that, that absolutely too, Defending yeah. or justifying the behavior of his industry friend. Yeah. And... Yeah, I mean, like, I don't think I felt any sympathy for. Oh that yeah, guy. <laughs> and again, I'm not saying sympathy, especially under the circumstances. But at, it would be one thing if he was like some like growling monster, but instead he's broken by. It's the you're, yes, yeah, I, I see that. Like, yeah, uh, broken and appropriately and broken. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about how much self self reflection uh, Jack had because the movie does not. I don't think address at all that. Eddie is 17. When sure. So I wonder, it's like a path that is possible to go down in this avenue, like this, this world of like younger and younger people you're trying to rope in. I don't, I don't think it's like touching on that, but that was kind of in my mind watching that scene of like Eddie and right away when Eddie said he was 17 and that did not seem to stop Jack at all from roping him into this adult enterprise. No. Yeah. I think that's a really important point as well, Connor, and really thinking about, accountability as far as Jack's character. And like, I think especially, and we'll get to the scene with Roller Girl, but like, I also don't know if I fully got enough scenes in which there's moments of recognition. I see moments of recognition in Jack's character as far as his reluctance to transition into the the VHS mode of, uh, or like the video format. Uh, he's, you know... He's loves his film and sort of the old style ways of filming these these movies. But like you see that, I feel like that's really what he's wrestling with. But I don't know if the movie completely has him wrestle with aspects of like, yeah, bringing in underage individuals to participate in these films. Uh, his hand in the film that they may, or like that they try to make with Roller Girl. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll save this comment for when we get to that scene. I'd say as far as, I mean, all that stuff goes, I, I understand that, and, you know, those are morally important conversations to have. That being said, I, I think this movie doesn't concern itself with those conversations as much because it is about an era in which those conversations weren't as relevant or as practiced um, or, or weren't as... Uh, uh, weren't considered the, the sort of moral middle ground that they are today. And I, and I see that point as well. It's like PT Anderson, not wanting to like impose like a more modern characterization on all these. It's like, it's like let the characters be what they and, are, but like at the modern same moralizing time, about that era, right. Modern make your moralizing. Movie not work. Well, and, and, yeah, and I, I think the term, I think that's right. Identifying modern moralizing, although he does make decisions that do feel like modern understandings of like who character it's like, I feel like he 
kind of picks and chooses what he does. But yeah, sorry, go ahead, Connor. I was saying, I don't think that, I think you're right that like the movie, I don't think needs that as like a subplot, especially because it is 17. That was the seventies, you know, (laughs) so things were like just culturally. Yeah. It was was a different different. era in that sense. Um, But I think just, that was just what was running kind of through my head of like, I wonder if at all, if this, if Jack was a real person, that would, I don't know. It was just a thought in that one, in that moment of the idea of, especially because we were talking about like consent and age, that's just kind of in that scene specifically, just what came to mind for me. Well, you know, it actually comes up again pretty much right now because uh, the next (laughs) thing that happens is that Jack enlists um, a uh, a newcomer, you know, no pun intended, Johnny Doe, um, (laughs) who who Dirk watches uh, Amber and Jack's growing affection for and is pretty much seething with jealousy. And then in another grueling bathroom mirror prep, um, Dirk isn't able to maintain an erection which is a task that we know hasn't been a problem for him up until now, um, pretty much because of rampant cocaine use. You know, being a male porn star who's addicted to cocaine will catch up with you eventually, let's say. And so in that sense, he's, he's struggling to perform. He's pale, he's sweating. Um, he's clearly an addict. He confronts Jack in a shouting match, insisting that he's ready to shoot, but Jack fires back that he won't shoot him in that state. Um, they nearly come to blows until Dirk and Reed storm out leaving the camera resting on Amber and Scotty, both of them sidelined and helpless until we fade out. And this is a probably good opportunity to discuss Burt Reynolds behind the scenes and behind the camera of this movie. He was apparently very displeased with uh, most of the process and was not happy with the final film. Uh, at one point, himself nearly coming to blows with P.T. Anderson. In an interview on Conan uh, many years later, uh, he reflected on the film saying that, quote, I had a hard time, pause, let me use a different adjective. I had a difficult time working on this film. So albeit, uh, you know, he, it seems as though Burt Reynolds did not have a great uh, great shoot with this movie and did not get along with P.T. Anderson, but at least he was able to make a joke out of it. It is an interesting dynamic because it was like, oh, this movie kind of reignited Burt Reynolds' career. Like he was nominated, hmm. right, for an Academy Award. Best Supporting Actor, yeah. Best Supporting Actor. And then I could totally imagine, I could totally like understand like inside his brain he's like this veteran actor this beloved actor and then here's this like know-it-all showy upstart filmmaker who's like i'm gonna make him my like second debut movie is gonna be about the porn industry and you're gonna be in it and i'm gonna do all these fancy things and i could i I just can see the dynamic playing out on site or or on set (laughs) I think that's so a funny thing to think about, like artistic, artistic slash personal struggle, sometimes creating amazing results because Burt Reynolds is an absolute standout. Oh, yeah. Yeah, He's so good in this movie. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, one of his best roles. Yeah, just undeniably a force within this movie. And I think you needed somebody with his presence to be the glue. Because then once Mm. he kind of his enterprise unravels then everything just kind of explodes. And everybody kind of goes their separate ways. Yeah, and it's—I mean, it's also—it's it, also kind of a big deal that Dirk storms out at that point. That—that that happens to coincide with Jack's empire kind of fraying, in part because he's lost his financing through the Colonel and has to start making compromises, but also because he's lost his star and also the glue of the found family. We, we then see, you know, Dirk trying to reinvent himself immediately after in the recording studio when he's singing um, Transformers. Transformers, original original animated series, You've uh, Got the Touch. You've Got the Touch. Oh, it's so good. I love those scenes. 
It's pretty great. <laughs> and the uh, I, I watched it with subtitles, and then when he started singing, went off key in brack, <laughs> and then. And he does a good job of of singing poorly. I mean, like you know. He wasn't doing a lot of singing per se, but he was, you know, he was the lead of a popular music group just shortly before this. And he does a really good job of singing poorly in the scene. Oh, uh, the like, <laughs> the, sound, the sound guy who's like mixing the their track is just like, oh my God, kill me. I was <laughs> thinking Man, I've been you, there. And, uh, you and Christine. <laughs> I, I've, I've, I've been in that position oh, before. It's so really awkward. Funny. It just well, requires I, a lot of patience. And Christine, I'm so glad you brought the idea of like support because I think the friendship between Reed and Eddie is or Dirk is um, just really great of like how they are like they've left together or like, you know, Reed following Dirk and then trying to build this music career because they think they're so talented and like they have these dreams. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of interesting of like Dirk achieves this dream, this first dream. And then follow-up dreams just crash and burn and spiral out of control. Especially when they're not connected to the found family working as a unit. That's sort of the big thing. Speaking of the found family not working as a unit, Jack is still continuing to shoot now on videotape. His shoots are lacking any passion and empty of their former artistry as uh, Floyd watches on, the person that encouraged him to get into VHS tape and now clearly his financier. At one point, Jack asks his editor how one of the films is coming along to which they offer an empty, it is what it is. Um, we also see Roller Girl and Amber pretty manically doing cocaine with very frantic cuts and camera movements to accentuate their addiction. Uh, Buck is denied alone um, as he's trying to get out of this life with his partner, Jesse. That alone I mean, to open this is his what, uh, that's commercial like another scene. Sword. That's like another scene where it's like the the guy at the bank is like, you, you're in like pornography. I can't mm-hmm. give you this loan. And Don Cheadle's character is like, I am an actor and the like conceptions of like what I do and how I'm making my money are limiting my ability to fucking do like it's like and he's also trying to like get out of the business he wants right. to do something completely different but it's just a nice like moment of recognition of like even though within their world and their circle they're successful and they have a network and they have support within that industry it's like those are the barriers that like are preventing him from what it, he wants to open his uh his like speaker business or whatever yeah, like stereo equipment <laughs> his yeah. stereo yeah 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 <laughs> and that seems wonderful i mean don Cheadle is amazing in that sequence and who who's the actress that plays his wife Jesse, uh, that's Melora Walters. She's one because she's in Magnolia too, right? Mm-hmm. She's great. I I feel like I don't know what happened to her, but yeah, I think yeah, them as a unit, they're great. Yeah, there's one small detail that really struck me is when because you see originally the original Dirk Diggler, his bond, what, what's his bond, Brock, Brock, Brock Landers, Brock Landers, the first pass and editing when you see the title scene and you know the intro to the movie and then when it's come when it's resurrected with this new younger actor um like the font is like even seems like cheaper so like even the way that like initial title sequence is edited just makes it seem like an inferior product even to the font choice that was used and like the music so i thought that was an interesting just like subtle detail pointing to you know Using, yeah. you know, showing, not telling that things are going downhill. Well, right. I, that's why I found it really interesting at the beginning of this episode, Dave, when you were like, P.T. Anderson started his own projects 
with VHS tape and mm-hmm. editing and cutting that way because as a I child, would, he, he did as a, okay, graduate okay. too. Because that's yeah. obviously what was available for him to use. Right. But I thought that the movie, like I would have thought that he would, because this movie is like maybe uh, decrying the loss of like film, filmmaking, like filmmaking with film. And again, I, this is showing my lack, my lack of understanding completely of the transition between film and video. But like, I would have thought that him as PT Anderson as a young director would have been like, oh, only film, like only film. But the fact that he, that VHS was such an integral part of his development as an artist and as a director, I feel like it's an interesting detail to think about this movie and VHS representing the decline of filmmaking. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's what it's going for. I think in spite of, you know, his early experience, I mean, that was just him like cobbling together films as a child with his limited resources. I think, I don't think he's got a lot of love for videotape. And I think that's very clear as the movie goes on. And I guess it also, at least within the porn industry, it's like the pivot to from theater porn experience and then like mass producing via like video. It's not only the format, but it's like the distribution like process as well. Like being like, oh, it's like people come to see this, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's how it impacts the product because it's, you know, the difference of medium did make an impact on the porn industry. It became a lot more lower budget. It became uh, a lot of, a lot more non-actors and it did become a more private experience, more private and, you know, arguably more underground experience in the sense that, you know, at least, you know, for all their faults, the films of the 1970s, the film pornography that was coming out at that time was the kind of thing that you would have to at least even if it wasn't a porn theater, would have to be like, yeah, this is technically a movie. You know what I mean? As opposed to the free format and um, introduction of like kind of amateur shoots and things like that, that VHS afforded the industry for better or worse. And this movie seems to think in a pretty pronounced way for worse. Yeah, I think you're right. And then if P.T. Anderson were to be like, I want to do Boogie Nights too. It'd be like the introduction to the internet. And how does that completely transform mm-hmm. everything? Well, you know what? And that's another reason he's one of my favorite directors. Uh, he has said of this, uh, because there was rumors. It's like, oh, there's a Boogie Nights se- 2 sequel in the work. Like, so we're working on oh, that. Oh, was there? Like, he, he has publicly said when that rumor came out, I will never make a sequel. And Like as a, on principle, that, like of for any that, he's of one He wins my heart alone, but. Dave, you don't want the Boogie Nights cinematic universe? I don't. Oh no. my god! I think we I think we got all we need with this. Boogie Nights End Game. That I would totally watch. <laughs> you don't want to know what they're doing with that gauntlet. My God. <laughs> but anyway, as oh. as far as what's going on in the movie, yeah, the the family is is unraveling. Dirk, Reed, and Todd, and Scotty. Um, are in the throes of addiction with repeated shots of Todd entering the same door with a score, but each time with increased impatience from everyone in the room, highlighting the escalation of their desperation and their addiction. We see Amber's custody hearing with uh, Reagan's portrait looming large in the background as the camera slowly pans in on uh, Amber and then her ex-husband and then back with kind of like an increasing zoom that I don't know, it, it makes it, it makes me as the viewer knowing the situation and it's kind of hopelessness for Amber because at this point, you know, her addiction, her profession and her arrest record 
in a sense, she doesn't have a chance in this hearing, and it becomes so uh, so darkly apparent in the way that the camera moves between the two of them and continues zooming in in this cold way, and then cuts to her sobbing outside of the office as passerbys coldly walk through the shot. Yeah, Julianne Moore gives a really great performance in this movie, like a whole range of of modes. And she's almost always good, but yeah, she's she's really running at full steam in this movie. Um, and that'll bring us then to, uh, I, I would describe it as the big day, uh, because it's the only title card that provides a specific date. That's Sunday, December 11th, 1983. This is when things start to get very, very, very dark in this movie. So Jack and Roller Girl are out making a series that they call On the Lookout, enlisting non-trained amateurs, uh, you know, non-actors, um, to perform with Roller Girl in the back of an on-the-move limo. The film itself, uh, Boogie Nights, cuts to the VHS vantage point, complete with bad contrast and light trails, indicative of Jack's former criticisms of the medium. The person they pick up happens to be one of the boys mocking Roller Girl in the school at the onset of the film. The tension of the atmosphere is then heightened when the boy recognizes her, calling her by her name Brandy which is the first time we hear her name in the movie. It's the first time she's not Roller Girl. And in that sense, you know, just with even just within acknowledging her name and having that confrontation of remembering her as a person, she's robbed of her self-assigned anonymity. And rather than Roller Girl experiencing this, she herself as a person is experiencing this. I, and I think that goes back to this notion of, of, pers- of persona. And it's like for her, mm-hmm. Roller Girl is her is her identity within this world. And that like, there are two violations going on. There's obviously like the sexual assault component that's like recorded on videotape. But like, I feel like the way the scene is set up, there's this also dual violation of the guy calling her Brandy, which is something we're understood to be what she doesn't want to be called and mm-hmm. that completely takes her off, like throws her off guard and yeah, is, is treated as a, as a weighted violation as well. Like as well as what we'll see happen later on. But yeah. And, and that like it, it completely. Yeah. And that's a great way to put it. That it is, it is a violation for sure. This is maybe the most powerful. I think the most, for me, the most powerful scene in the whole film. It's really difficult. It's difficult. It shows visually, as you were mentioning with like the film quality of just how far Jack and his vision um, have fallen and how he has the utmost respect it seems for his crew. I did want this, this scene I still have trouble with though, because I think we talked about sort of Anderson's not wanting to, uh, what was the term you used, uh, like, or, or, or like impose sort of modern moralizing on the story. But at the same time, the scene is set up to be uncomfortable, but like, I don't know if the... I don't know if the movie completely handles the buildup to this scene enough, like well enough for me to feel that the character of Roller Girl is is fully fully formed enough to like to go through this. I don't know. Like I know it's supposed to be a hard watch and that's intentional, but I that scene Well, before we did before we continue discussing that scene, let's talk about the scene that's intercut with Okay, um, because go, yeah, this yeah, does jump ahead. back and forth between two sequences, which makes it all the much more intense. Oh, we're, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're also cutting back to um, a man soliciting Dirk in a truck. Dirk 
uh, gets into the truck and he's asking $20 to perform um, and then settles for 10. It's like he's fallen back into uh, a place where his his rise and fall has become, in a sense, irrelevant because he has returned by turning away from the established uh, support of that found family and, and, stri- and striking out on his own as well as his addiction and surrounding himself with characters like Todd, really fallen back to a place where where everything has, he's achieved has unraveled. The situation goes on where uh, this this John, when Dirk is unable to become erect, uh, calls on his buddies to come by in another truck and they all jump him in the parking lot. Um, there are a lot of uh, a lot of slurs being tossed around here, something to know going into it um, that make the scene all the more intense. And as this intense sequence is going on, we're also cutting back again to Roller Girl and Jack and uh, the VHS quality plus the tension and degradation of the scene take an interesting stance on what's captured, I think. Uh, throughout the film, as we mentioned before, sex is, um, is not erotic and almost utilitarian, but it's never necessarily sleazy. But what we see here is now exploitation on full horrific display, uh, matched by the seediness of the lower quality VHS image. Um, so it really is Jack having lost control Roller Girl is unsafe, and the entire enterprise is in sad contrast with what Jack and the crew originally envisioned as artists. And not only as artists, but morally speaking as well. Yeah, echo everything that you just mentioned. I think um, that truck scene is interesting. And this is very, you know, things that, you know, read about, seen, whatnot, of like, this dude, like, calls him the, the other F word. And you know, it's the F word. There's, there's just, there's fuck, and then there's the F word. You know, <laughs> uh, beats him up. It's like, but dude, you were watching him do that for like what, 10, 15, 20 minutes? I don't know. It's like, what's your end game? Like, like. I don't know. It's. I feel like it's one of those just entrapment like things, honestly. You know. And that's not a criticism. That's like how, like sometimes those things like play out. It's like I don't know. It's just like, dude, what were? I don't know. It's like people are terrible. Is my just sentiment. Yeah, and I mean, we're we're realizing that people outside of their orbit, outside of the family unit, outside of the industry, are, aren't the sort of people they should be doing these things with because it puts them in a dangerous position. I mean, back in the limo, we now come to where Jack calls things to a halt just short of outright rape, When we, which returns us to the film's uh, conventional style. We cut away from that VHS style that we get um, as our vantage point of that as they're shooting it, and back to the film's... Uh, you know, more cinematic style, which exposes us in more detail to the smudged makeup, the tussled clothes. It becomes a grim reality. The boy remarks while getting out of the car, this is a fine life you've made for yourself. You should really be proud. I mean, really. And then to Jack, and your fucking films suck now anyway. Um, At this point, Jack jumps him. Uh, We cut back and forth between Jack beating the boy and the men beating Dirk in the parking lot, all set to a low-frequency funereal dirge. Roller Girl jumps out and nearly caves the boy's head in with her skates, stopping and screaming, you don't ever disrespect me, you fucker. You can't touch me, you fucker, before being dragged back into the limo. So altogether, it's a devastating sequence between those two juxtaposed sequences, which are both, to a degree, saying, I I think, similar things. But then we get a bit of a wild card. Uh, We follow the truck away from Dirk as Jack's limo passes, kind of a cool intersection on the street. And then holding on the street, Buck and Jesse drive toward a donut shop. Uh, Buck is dressed in a spotless white suit, leaving a visibly pregnant Jesse in the car. And there's an established atmosphere of doom. So we really don't think things are going to go well for Buck at this point. And he and Jesse are two people that have seemingly, in, in spite of the hurdles, made a genuine effort to escape this world of their own volition. 
So it really feels like things are going to get pretty intense and go really poorly. Buck goes in there and the camera follows him from behind the display case as he politely makes his selections. Then a robber bursts in brandishing a gun and demanding that the clerk empty the safe. Uh, He thrusts the gun in Buck's face several times as Buck stands petrified and pleading. Another man, a trucker, toward the back of the shop, pulls a gun and fires into the would-be robber, um, causing the robber to shoot the trucker while falling dead. Uh, The trucker falling dead... uh, Fires off one more round, uh, killing the clerk and leaving Buck uh, now spattered with blood with a bag of cash from the safe. And after a tense pause, Buck grabs the cash and rushes out the door and we cut to black. That scene is so good. And the way he builds the builds into it by like having Buck like carefully pick out each different donut that he wants and oh it's christmas time or are those the christmas donuts and you Mm -hmm. just know like even if you were watching this movie for the first time you would Mm -hmm. know that some shit is about to go down and it's a wonderful pit well yeah i think juxtaposed with those two other horrific scenes it then it acts as sort of the anti-1979 into 1980 new years it's like okay and then here's the third act and this is when we see well actually no because then you have the alfred molina scene so maybe there's no pivot there but like it at least recognizes that things are working out for some characters even though they're within the context of horrific moments of trauma yeah i mean part of me the first time i watched it thought that like as soon as buck grabs the money something else is going to go wrong yeah uh, but it doesn't. Well, it's 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 like he didn't get the money at the bank, so he's gonna you know take advantage of a momentarily horrific situation, horrific situation and then it's gonna set him up for yeah the rest of his life. I'm so sorry, guys. Can we can we just take a two minute break? There might possibly be an electrical fire in our apartment, and can you yeah, just, let's like, take a break. Can we just yeah, yeah, we can't figure it out. <laughs> just one, like, or or maybe three minutes. Yeah, we'll be here. Yeah, take your okay. time. Okay. <laughs> or you guys can keep talking, and I'll just like jump back in. Uh, sorry. You got it. Go take care of a thing. On here, home I wrote. You know I think I done finally I love you. You love me. Going down the sugar tree. We'll go down the sugar tree and see lots of bees playing, playing. But the bees won't sting because you love me. That's That's fucking great, man. Did you write that? Yeah, I write songs too. Wow. So Connor, you were saying that it feels like, uh, it feels a little bit Tarantino-esque, this sequence with, uh, with Don Cheadle here. It does, I, I think in two ways. One, just the excessive amount of gore which Mm -hmm. has only happened one other time in the movie with William H. Macy and then blood here or there. Um, But also the way that it's a little kind of comical of trucker shoots robber, robber shoots trucker, trucker's gun hits the table, trucker's gun shoots the clerk, the, um, cashier in the face uh-huh. in the back of the head, which sprays brain matter onto Don Cheadle's all white over suit. Don Cheadle's white suit. Yeah. And so it it in like a disarming way, I think is kind of comical to like pair it with brutal assault, both physical and sexual in nature, to then this kind of like comical, like I think it's just a, another example of PT Anderson's juxtaposition of a scene of like I, this is not a, a fully formed thought. This is kind of off the cuff. Um, mm-hmm. But that sort of informs of like things are just out of control, and sometimes that works 
in this case, it works in Buck's favor. And the fact that I think yeah. as an audience, we're expecting Buck to die. Right. Because we've just seen two of the main players be horrible, you know, experience traumatic and horrible events. But the fact that luck, because if the cashier wasn't standing right where he was standing, Buck would be dead. Buck, yeah, or, you know, maybe it would have would have gone... Yeah, maybe, you know, obviously the clerk would have survived and maybe maybe even if Buck wasn't shot, I mean, he wouldn't have gotten, it would have just been horrific instead of him getting the windfall of cash that he accidentally gets through this horrific event. Yeah, so I'm not sure if it's like saying like shit happens and sometimes when things are falling apart, there is some luck there. Like sometimes some things just get lucky. I don't know if we can look at it that deep, but. It's the um, kind of thing that if you watch Magnolia, I feel like uh, this scene rings of magnolia a lot to me yeah are those surreal like moments or like not surreal per se but like moments of it's like coincidence meets like meets luck meets like fate yeah uh and like i feel like as much as pt anderson like is a an example of someone who plays with well he doesn't it's like He's like a great director and a great writer, but he really loves his sort of archetypal characters and mm-hmm. stories like that are very sort of like classic. Uh, what, what was that? Mythic too. Mythic, like, yes. No, he, really, he really does. Like I think he in many ways is tied to that. And so it's like Buck is a character we, we're rooting for. We're rooting for, I would say all the characters, but like, I think, yeah, it's just a moment where it's like, the the gods the fates intervene and it's like no he's mm-hmm. gonna he's gonna get the money he needs to do to do his thing and so that leaves us with uh basically like two more sequences in this movie since we discussed the whole thing which i didn't kind of want to do only because like i know that some people aren't going to want to watch this movie but i i think it's spectacular for some of its details so i'm glad we were able no, to highlight I love, them i love beat by beat <laughs> so. but this uh this then brings us to uh, a sequence that i think I, I, I hate to call it superfluous or unnecessary because, because I'm realizing it might be my favorite scene of all time, but ultimately it doesn't, I don't know. We'll discuss whether or not it's necessary as we get to the end of it. But after we fade to black from, um, from Buck grabbing the money, we get one more title card, which is the long way down parentheses. One last thing. Probably his admission too of like I didn't necessarily need to include this, but like Maybe. whatever. While we're here, <laughs> it's uh, Todd hatching a plan that he, Dirk, and Reed will bring fake cocaine to a dealer named Rahad Jackson, uh, played by Alfred Molina, in exchange for five grand, which they'll split three ways. Which, by the way, bringing fake coke to a manic and established drug dealer for a third of five grand i'm i'm not doing that it doesn't really seems like that i mean but it, but it does frame that they're grasping at straws they're really desperate um, no, it's a wonderful half-baked plan that says oh everything God, you yeah. need to know about their each one of their characters and it's really cool when we watch them go over the plan too and and formulate this idea we watch them go through the plan in this kind of round table pan with scotty kind of nervously fretting in the background with dirk telling him to shut up and like dismissing his uh you know his fear of the situation todd is like in command of the conversation and is kind of like the ringleader and reed has some like clerical questions and is clearly nervous so like we get each of their places within what will become an obviously bungled scenario pretty quickly even as they're planning it we then get to rahad's place uh todd reveals that he's brought a gun with him was not part of the plan 
They enter as led in by a large armed guard. And we meet Rahad, uh, again, a manic, coked-out figure in a robe and underwear, uh, and his silent associate Cosmo, a Chinese man idly throwing firecrackers about the room. Rahad's, quote, awesome mixtape number six is blaring in the background, interrupted on occasion by the blast of the firecrackers, creating a constantly tense, if not horrifying, situation. Oh, I love it so much. It's just like, there's, there's such an insane tension to not only the situation, but the explosions that are constantly going off on top of this blaring music. Uh, at one point, Rahad pulls out uh, a gun and uh, puts it to his throat, uh, trying to do, you know, doing a Russian roulette, which is intensified even further by the fact that there are, you know, incidental uh, intermittent firecracker explosions going off the whole time. So it's like, oh my God, did he shoot himself? No, he's fine. Oh my God, did he, wait. And this this constant tension that is makes it such a remarkable scene. I think what prevents the scene from being superfluous are a few moments. One is, I think, uh, what's the character Melinda's character's name? Rahad. Uh, Rahad. Rahad is sort of the like anti Jack of like this pure <laughs> '80s excess, and especially going on and on about the mixtape of mm-hmm. like nobody's going to tell me. What or like a band releases an album right. and it's like nobody tells me what order I'm gonna listen to music in. He's like, these this mixtape is awesome. I get to arrange the music, which feels very much in lockstep with this idea of like VHS. Yeah, it's like I don't want to be constrained by an artistic vision of like a whole album. I want right. to listen to what I want to listen to, just as like the immediacy of VHS is like I don't want to go to a theater and like fucking watch a movie. I want to just have the movies I love on hand, be able to pop them in, quick access. Yeah, that's a great observation. Uh, I can't believe I'd never considered that. That's, yeah, that's a very, very good find. That's a really good spot there. And it's, and also his like, Jack lived in excess, but not like that. His excess was his family. And like a nice home, Mm -hmm. but not to the degree of like the opulence of like the stone walls and all the like the way that he's dressed like. And it's gaudy. It's got like clashing different aesthetics all within the same space. And And you never saw Jack with a bodyguard either. Right. So for me, it's just sort of like and I think that's there's this moment where you just stare at. Dirk's fate it's like this oh, 30 yeah. second long and when I was watching I was like what I was like intensely looking at his face like what are we learning here what and I think for me it's sort of like this is what I've been looking for and then kind of shifting to this is kind of fucked up but this well, is me I think- only seeing it once and that's a scene like that 30 seconds it feels like 30 seconds is like one that I feel like I would want to go back and rewatch and just pick up those nuances. But at a first pass, that's kind of what I was pulling from it. Well, I think also related to something we were talking about before, as far as Anderson's embracing of sort of mythical archetypes and narratives, that's like a descent into hell. Like truly, Mm -hmm. like Alfred Molina, like, as you said, Connor represents the anti-Jack. And it's like, this is a world where, Dirk could have completely just like fallen into and been sort of consumed by, but it's like, as we'll see things play out where like he finds a way out, but this is like really rock bottom for him. I think the ultimate, ultimate rock bottom. I think, yeah, for that, as far as that fixed stare and that, that hold on his face, which is some of Mark Wahlberg's best acting of all time. And he's not saying anything, 
which is my problem with a lot of his other performances. He doesn't have this like rolling momentum based word vomit kind of thing with, with a lot of swearing. And it's just like, ah, but I think you're acting really well here because you're just telling us with your face. Like I, for me, it's um, as Dirk's looking into a situation with that long thousand yard stare of a person questioning their decisions. And at one point, almost smiling at the irony of their fate in spite of their ambition. Because he almost does smile at one point, but it's the smile of someone who is like recognizing like, man, I have really let everything fall apart. I um, thought it was sort of a like keeping face, like, like, or okay. like, be, like he knows that in any circumstance he needs to maintain some sort of like, sh- like facade or sheen of like, I'm just rolling with everything. But yeah, I don't know. I definitely could be up for interpretation. Well, There's reminds- a lot in that stare that you could, you could glean things from. Yeah. Reminds me of the end of Widows um, with her hmm. look at the end at Alice too of like a lot you can do a lot with a little if you just put a, a, an actor doing a good job and just letting that, the camera roll. Yeah. Which I think is a hallmark of PT style. Yeah, big time. And also it's one of those things too where like, you know, it seems like they're just kind of like running out the clock until they can get out of there, which is, you know, uh, so I'm told can be an experience when uh, dealing with dealers. But at any rate, they do decide ultimately that they're going to leave. But Todd, he, he changes he changes course entirely. Suddenly, Todd's got his own agenda with this thing. And in this amazing Tom Jane delivery, just this uh, sudden, hey, 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 hey. Um, and what are, what are the lines? Is uh, I wrote it down here. It's um, we want what's in the goddamn safe and the goddamn master bedroom and the fucking floor and the goddamn fucking floor safe. That's all. And just the way he delivers it is so incredible. And then he repeats it again, or or is it Melina who re- they repeat the he line? He goes through it once without all the cursing, but then in he repeats the bedroom, it yeah. under the bed, in the safe, under the floorboards, and it's just such a wonderful like list of like where this fucking money or like memorized to, details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like Tom Jane. Ever since where have you been all you your life? This is incredible. This, I can't believe that's him. That is just the revelation of a lifetime. Yeah, he's he's stellar in this scene, and um, you know, at that point, uh, Rahad kind of is aware of what's going on. He shoots Todd in the shoulder. And as Dirk and Reed scramble, his bodyguard, um, Rahad's bodyguard fires after them. Todd shoots the armed guard and then tries to storm the bedroom where he's blown away by Rahad with a shotgun um, who runs after Dirk and Reed who escape. There's one last detail of this sequence because I could talk all day about the sequence. It's I, I watched it. I watched this movie. I, like I said, four times in prep, I watched that scene so many times in the past week because I just, I not only because I love it so much, but because there's so much there. And one of those really subtle things is the choice of songs that are chosen for the sequence of the mixtape. The songs in order in the scene are Knight Rider's sister, Christian into Rick Springfield's Jesse's girl into uh, big sounds bands, 99 red balloons. The themes of those songs are in order in that order escape into longing and obsession into unexpected violence that's 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 dirk's arc and it's in the background of this scene that's cool i never thought about that that progression all i think about is alfred molina lip-syncing jesse's girl (laughs) also alfred molina has supposedly never heard these songs before and like frantically tried to learn the lyrics in full before the shoot but clearly can't remember them as they're shooting to the point that it's like i thought he did a I pretty good Jesse's job girl was mine and it's great and it's just like <laughs> he's just making up whatever he wants and it's wonderful it's so off-putting it's so like put you on the edge of your seat like this dude 
just adding to that unhinged. Oh, yeah. It's also an, a wonderful villain moment. It's like mm-hmm. in any movie, the villain needs its time to sh- the person's time to shine, you know? And like this is the villain's time to just eat up the stage. Well, and also yeah. another like idea of like potential pedophilia or like exploitative, uh, yeah, big time. exploitative sexual mm-hmm. relationship. It's understated, but that, yeah, Cosmo in the background. He does give yeah. him this hug and this little butt pat, and it's like, this seems like something that shouldn't be happening at all. Yeah, yeah. Which is, once again, going to, like, the anti-Jack. Right. Especially um, after we saw Jack, you know, stop or, you know, he, he could have done more to help Roller Girl, but in his, in his, he did ultimately stop what was happening. Right. Um, so just, that was just another pedophilia thought. As yeah. Well. Yeah, it's in there. It's in that scene, for sure. So this leaves Dirks with a shattered ego and prized Corvette shot to pieces, uh, arriving at Jack's house in the early morning. In a one-take uncut shot, uh, Dirk pours his heart out to Jack and begs forgiveness. Jack wordlessly embraces Dirk, who sobs an apology in his arms, and Jack offers an apology as well. We then get our... Oh, Sorry, right. there's just one moment that I that really stood out to me. It's, it's after... Uh, so Thomas Jane's character is shot dead. Mm-hmm. John C. Riley and... Mark Wahlberg are running out the house chased by Jason or by Alfred Molina. And then like Dirk drives his car that's being shot out or shot at and all his windows car is busted. But the scene where Dirk gets out of his car and like is completely disheveled, Hmm. sleep deprived. It seems like it's early morning. It's just really unflattering light. And I just, the way that Anderson sets up that shot, watching him get out of his car bedraggled looking like shit uh is also a wonderful visual moment of watching this character reach complete complete rock bottom also kind of yeah you're right that's a great that's a great shot i'm glad you mentioned it compared to the scene that amber shot like those like cute sunset scenes that she included like in her uh, video of him as he's overlooking the river and his car and all these things. I feel like that the scene after the uh, Alfred Molina scene is like truly D- Dirk Diggler at his at his lowest ugliest point. And and he walks away from the car right to go to Jack's. Yeah. He he pushes the car that runs out of gas. That was kind of that was a one on the moment or on two on the nose moment when like his his like gas level is on empty. It's like, oh yeah, I didn't need to see the gas tank. But like <laughs> he pushes the car to I think to Jack's neighborhood or something. Well, you know, he's running on empty. It's probably Yeah, I was like, heavy, all right, uh, all right. <laughs> it's a little it is very on the nose, but yeah. And I'm not sure where he dropped it off, but I kind of viewed that as like removing like the albatross from his neck of like this status symbol has like led to nothing but trouble over the past, I guess, two years or, you know, so it's like him of like this childish goal of like this fast race car, which Ooh, the earlier car the movie, is Albatross. I like that. Mm. Yeah. And earlier in the movie, Thomas Jane is like, knows all the specs of this Corvette. Right. Like, race car of like, this is clearly something from Todd's world that has oh affected Eddie and that he's now, Ejecting. That's kind of how I took that. Hmm. Rhyme of the ancient Dirk Diggler, the epic <laughs> poem of the Corvette Albatross. I love it. There's two. There's things we got to make. The stage musical, the epic poem. 
Mm. Sorry. Well, we know that the party music at the end of the New Year's party would have to come back for the Alfred Molina scene, but in like a twisted kind of way, like distorted the, the reprise of the party music, but <laughs> in something nearly unrecognizable. Well, you know, speaking of a uh, not a reprise, but uh, some some nice music, uh, we're offered a bit of tenderness here after uh, after Jack and uh, Eddie. Which, you know, it now feels like Eddie again. I, I feel like Dirk has come and gone and has, has crumbled as a persona for him uh, in a way that he is, he's a broken version of the, the person that, uh, that Jack first found and is returning to him. Uh, and then we're treated to God Only Knows by the Beach Boys to play us out. We get a great closing montage that really kind of neatly ties up a lot of loose ends. Buck's stereo store has his grand opening with a commercial shot by Amber and Scotty. So they're doing other work. They're branching out. They're doing, they're doing other things beyond uh, adult filmmaking. Roller Girl returns to school. Uh, the colonel is being battered by his cellmate in prison. Uh, Maurice, the club owner, played by the always delightful Louise Guzman, um, gets his new club sign, albeit with a typo in its name. It's, a, it's, it's supposed to be a G. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Reed performs an adult magic show because he's he's had a penchant for uh, for magic throughout the movie, as we've seen. He does like little casual sleight of hand and. After his uh, porn career has crumbled and he's bottomed out uh, trying to flip uh, non-cocaine for money, you know, this seems to be uh, kind of his parachute and he seems to be doing okay. Um, We also see Jesse giving birth to she and Buck's child as Scotty films the birth. So again, filmmaking is still constantly a part of this family and uh, part of what connects them. I also loved that moment of like the idea of like filming a birth. It's like, it's like we've seen sort of the the specifics of the porn industry and like cameras focusing on, you know, bodily anatomy and things like that. And seeing a wonderful, just like life moment where it's like, okay, another angle of bodily anatomy <laughs> is like the camera focused on the vag as it's giving. I was going to say, maybe like, Scotty's like, yeah, I know that. I know how to shoot this. It's definitely a funny moment, but it's like, oh yeah, this guy knows what he's doing. Like he'll, he'll, he'll be able to capture it. Well, like, yeah, I just thought of that during oh. the, uh, during the birth scene. It's like a nice little light touch. And um, and then finally, in the end, the crew is back to work shooting on film um, in another long tracking shot, another tracking shot that has sees the camera move with the familiar warmth that we saw initially in the movie. But I strangely enough sat to the the organ dirge from the black uh, screen in the beginning of the movie. So it's kind of like it, it's it's almost navigating uh, the the familiar warmth of the family dynamic having been reunited, but with an acknowledgement of the gravity of its cost and uh, the consequences and those who've been lost along the way, not the least of which highlighted by little Bill's portrait being featured in the hallway. That was weird. That was scary. So, <laughs> it, I don't know. It feels to me like it's, you know, it's a nice resolution in bringing back that theme, the, the John, John uh, Bryan theme, that, that sort of melancholic thing that we got at the beginning before we got any context uh, while also conjoining that with the the warmth and familial nature of the camera movements as it highlights their found family so it's yeah it's again it's 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 them all having come back together but them having lost some along the way and the knowledge of what their time apart has cost them so it's 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 kind of a bittersweet moment in a lot of ways i'm glad you brought the idea of like what it cost them because while this is objectively and on the page a happy ending some of the montages are like left me kind of questioning like to bring it back to roller girl she's sitting in the class kind of like she was back when she was in high school 
of mm-hmm. kind of like staring and zoning out and like it's not like it's like I have my pencil and I am finishing my tests and I am sure and, and then nobody claps for John C. Riley and like the trick seems like <laughs> It's like, oh, but he's having a great time. Yeah. I don't think he's a successful magician, <laughs> right. but I saw in that scene, it's like a guy that truly has a passion for his artistry. <laughs> and, and I, think, I think, I guess my point is like what could have been cashing in for sentimentality in a feel-good moment still leaves a few questions. Yeah, and and we also get like the colonel in the mix too. So like, you know, there's, it, there's the clear message that it, it even despite, you know, how you want to interpret Roller Girls uh, vignette within this montage, it hasn't worked out for everybody. And, like, things are generally in a better place going forward, but there's still room for growth. Like, mm-hmm. it's not like he didn't put a nice bow on it saying, and yeah. now everybody lived happily ever after. It's like there's still these struggles and conflicts that we've seen. Right. Um, but there has been resolution over the course of these five years or so. And I think that's, again, where Anderson kind of walks this line of of like not dealing with the content in a over romanticized way but at the same time working within a storytelling mode of making things work out like if this were like a, a different film people would be not things wouldn't be working out so seamlessly for Carrie. Like, I feel like there's this sort of like magical element to the ending as well. Like, I didn't see this as a realistic portrayal of like the conclusion of these people's lot. Like it felt, it did feel like tidily or like nicely tied up, but in a way that's like, this is a story and we care about these characters. And like, this is a nice tidy way of, of, finishing their stories but like in not the most necessarily believable way i think i think anderson is someone who cares deeply about both archetype and individually humanized and developed characters and i think this is an example of him finding navigating that balance in a way that it does give you in some senses are are more like perhaps as we've said unrealistic resolutions of archetypal arcs but because I, I didn't think it need feels, that. But I, I definitely still think it feels drastically not. human. Well, yes, everyone. I totally agree. And it's definitely not anything I needed. But it's like, I think it's it's like we see still recognizing the story within the framework of a film. Like, I still feel like there's a removed layer of even watching these characters still within the framework of, like, a movie. And not necessarily mm. within the framework of, like real life i would say well which is what you see with the final scene at the end with with eddie pumping himself up in the mirror but this time it's like slicked back hair 80s like white jacket so i think there's still this element of facade of facades being put on yeah and so then there's yeah that final the final scene (laughs) which is uh you know almost like a fargo with the wood chipper almost like alien with the chestburster there is uh there's something people know this movie for and it's the end of the movie which is um eddie as I being Dirk again, and as he as he's preparing as he always has before the mirror, I think there's a there's a pronounced difference this time. I think his performance uh, to himself, you know, rehearsing what he's going to do, um, is more refined. It's more convincing, and it's more mature for him as an actor because it's informed by the experiences we've seen him go through. 
Um, I think he's still playing a part and is still being an actor, but I think he has the life experience now to elevate it beyond to, to, to what Jack had intended to, to embody a role that transcends purely erotic entertainment to, to, to be an actor. And then of course he stands and, uh, you know, the interesting thing for me is his head is just out of frame. Uh, it's it's just outside of the frame of the mirror when he unzips his fly and he pulls out uh, pulls out a pretty hefty member. Um, it's a prosthetic that uh, measures, I think, about 13 inches. Wahlberg got to keep the prosthetic after the shoot. But I, I do think it's really interesting the way that it's framed because you don't see his face. You, you just see that. And after the whole movie has been this buildup, this implied buildup of, it almost reminds me too, like almost like a Tarantino, like um, Pulp Fiction golden suitcase thing, where it's just like, it's this forbidden thing that you like, I mean, it's not so comparable to that because you don't know what that is. And obviously you know what this is, but it has the same kind of like allure and cinematic mystique until you see it, but you can't see it at the same time that you see Mark Wahlberg or Eddie's face. You, You don't get it both ways with it, which is a really interesting choice. Let me know if this is so incredibly off base, but that just kind of reminds me of the Ark of the Covenant of like this thing that Indy has been searching after. Bunch of Nazis are melting when he takes his pants off. Oh my God. A Boogie Nights Ark of the Covenant like mashup. (laughs) Indiana Jones closes. We don't see, you know, he can't see. I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, that's too far. That's just (laughs) two hours of recording. And that's just what popped into my brain. I was going to say, yeah, we've been at this one for a while. Some kind of um, like status that this uh, member has, but yeah, it's like it's like it's been endowed with this sort of, and again, I'm going to say it, this mythic mm-hmm. uh, import, import, and it's like we finally see it, and it's like okay, there it is. It's, it's like a giant dick. It's just a giant dick, and end of movie. And yeah, I think it's like after the like storytelling climax it's like it's like within the story we've reached the peaks and troughs of the actual narrative and then the like thing that this whole movie has really been revolving around is finally revealed and it's like all right there it is yeah you got it end of scene well and uh before just before walking out as you know we're just Staring, Eddie. Eddie says uh, to himself in preparation, I- "I'm a star. I'm a star. I'm a star. I'm a star. I'm a big, bright, shining star." Then he walks out of frame. We cut to black, and we get ELO's living thing, which um, <laughs> they they didn't want in the movie initially uh, until the singer of Yellow saw a rough cut of the movie and was like, "Yeah, okay, it's fine." This, I mean, this movie soundtrack is so good. Oh, it reminds me so much too. It reminds me a lot of Goodfellas, not only in terms of his pace and editing, but in terms of it relying so heavily on music supervision. I th- I remember you bringing that up during our Good- Goodfellas episode. And I was definitely also thinking about that watching Boogie Nights and like how integral the music is to the scenes. And and I also think back to our Oscars episode, like, a co- like I don't know how many eons ago when we were talking about like made up awards and i think something you brought up dave was like best fake dick (laughs) (laughs) yeah the uh, the award that should be i mean it's a landslide honestly but (laughs) yeah we know who will win but like no was that award um of like music supervisor or like Mm -hmm. 
that should be something that is looked upon as a, an award-worthy uh, category because there are some movies where the, the music supervision and the selections of songs are so important to each of the scenes um, and the, so much would be lost without them. And I, I, yeah, I was thinking about that within the context of this movie as well. And it's not like, a pro, like it's nowhere near the suicide, like Suicide Squad's use of just like, Oh, it's a no, bad it isn't. character, like sympathy for the devil, or like the most. That is gratuitous. It's like it's like <laughs> it's like of era. It's like scenic dressing, but it's not like hitting you over the head with like this is a '70s song. This is another right. like it's. That's the thing. It takes. It's hard, and I think it's more than scenic dressing. I. It's like I think this movie moves into. It's more than just a nice signifier of decade. It's like, it's like feeling, but yeah. So it fuck suicide squad. Yes. And I mean, that in essence is boogie nights. Um, we lost Sam a little while ago, but this is what she thought about it. Yeah. So, you know, after listening to this whole discussion, I'm, I'm really thinking about this movie. And I think that, I appreciate this film. I, I don't know if it's something that I'll ever revisit, but mm-hmm. I think that I I am glad to have watched it and am impressed and surprised at how well it handles some really sensitive and delicate topics. And, you know, the the idea of found family isn't not it's not really something I thought about when I was watching it, but you know. Burt Reynolds' character was someone that I couldn't help but just sort of love in some kind of way. And I do think that he is this, like, ultimately, for better or for worse, but, like, loving figure. And so, I don't know. I I think that my final stamp is I I liked it. Okay. A a hesitant I liked it. That (laughs) sounds good. I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad you... uh... Glad you at least enjoyed breaking down the movie and its different themes with us and uh, and had a good time um, watching it, even though it's not something you may return to. Yeah, thanks for thanks for picking it and letting me watch it. Yeah. Uh, so that having been said, I mean, um, I don't know. I, I adore this movie. It's uh, it's one of the ones that I brought to our, uh, our top 100. But walking away from this movie, any final thoughts on Boogie Nights? Uh, any final thoughts on P.T. Anderson's directorial chops as applies to Boogie Nights or uh, anything else that we want to say before we round out the episode? Nobody got beat with a um, bowling pin. So like two out of ten. You know what? Yeah, you're you're right. No milkshakes. More bowling pins. <laughs> oh, no talk of milkshakes. I, I, you know, watching it, I, I watched this movie the day before, the night before we recorded last night. And I was like, I liked it. I don't know how much I'm going to have to say. And then as you were like, I think Dave did a good job of like teasing out the behind the scenes and going through it. Really, in so much of it has stuck with me that I didn't quite recognize at first. And like, I think that's the strength of PT is like, you can kind of go into it and like enjoy this like ride. But then if you really want to dig deep, you can even get into like, there's many corners and nooks and crannies. You know, that's my experience every time I see a movie of his he's made since There Will Be Blood, where I walk away and I think to myself, like, all right, I like that a lot. I'm going to think about it for a long time, and then I'm going to go see it again later this week. <laughs> and, Connor, yeah. it's really satisfying to hear you say uh, say that, because, I mean, like, I think there are a lot of things that are real standout moments that, even on a first-time viewing, can become really cemented in your mind and, and, and really strong takeaways from uh, – 
from the movie. And I think you 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 provided some insight that uh, after having seen this in excess of twenty times and four times this past week, I'd never thought of. So I was really glad to uh, to get your take. And Christine, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really fun watch. I think I think that there are things that I still am am processing. Um, I'm really kind of activated by our conversation about like how directors handle material set in previous eras Mm. um, in a way that doesn't completely smother the story in, I'm going to bring it up again, sort of like modern lens, like completely modern moralizing lens, but at the same Mm -hmm. time examines themes and topics in ways that that do feel like the director is considering material in a contemporary way. I guess I didn't really explain that distinction very well, but like it's something I yeah, I mean I've definitely been thinking yeah, been thinking about. I mean Boogie Nights is such a fun watch. I still I feel like I would be curious to know if the how the exact same story would be handled like today if he was to take on this material again. Um, I've been thinking a lot about like, uh, like, like articles that talk about like intimacy coordinators in uh, sets and thinking about uh, directorial, like the male gaze on sets and thinking Mm -hmm. about male directorial power uh, and, and like a character like Jack, even though we're really sort of seeing him as sort of this paternal figure um, still what are those moments where scenes where it's supposed to suggest he cares about the craft of filmmaking over sort of exploitive material? How do we still reconcile the fact that it's a male director who's just having people engage in intimate acts, just like on a whim right there. And it's, again, it's within the framework of the porn industry, but at the same time, like how has that evolved? And yeah, just stuff I could ramble on forever, but things that I'm still kind of thinking through. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I think this, this movie is, is a great one to talk through those, uh, particular questions, uh, because yeah, it's, there's a lot there. And Anderson has a very, uh, unique, uh, vision for, for his films. Yeah, I heard an interview uh, to close things out that um, that was what he thought made a good director. Um, an interview question that was lobbied, uh, lobbied at him in an interview uh, shortly after this film was released. And he said, uh, a clarity and purpose of vision um, is pretty much what a director needs. And I think he brings that to the table with just about every project he works on. I would say that I've enjoyed all of his films and would highly recommend them all. You know, there are some that are a little more challenging than others. Uh, this, as far as its themes and as far as uh, its its story being one of them, but as far as the other ones, uh, just more cinematically challenging experiences. So I think he's got a very varied catalog that still finds itself rooted in some directorial trademarks, um, in a strong stable of actors and uh, fellow crew members that he consistently works with. And uh, as he describes, uh, yeah, a very pronounced clarity of vision with each project that he takes on. So uh, again, would recommend um, pretty much all of his movies uh, personally. This has been a great discussion and um, has ran just about the length I thought it would. I figured it would be almost a commentary length for this movie because there was a lot that I really adore about it and a lot that I really think um, 
showcases uh, PTA's directorial chops. I'll be looking forward to our other discussions surrounding different directors as we move forward, because uh, I imagine we're going to get into the nitty gritty of some of the more nuanced and um, more thematic approaches and uh, cinematic approaches of different directors that uh, we really adore and that we're really looking forward to talking about via the films we recommend. So be sure to stay tuned and be sure to check out uh, what other directors are coming down the path for us uh, as we continue this theme. Uh, is there anything anybody wants to recommend or plug quickly before we round out the episode? As of this recording, Boogie Nights is on HBO Max. Yep. So you can check it out there. Ho- hopefully not. Uh, if, you, if, it's, if you've never seen it and you've made it this far, uh, still worth a watch for sure. Oh yeah. Our descriptions of it <laughs> cannot uh, uh, but do justice to the scenes. I, put the kids uh, to bed first, you know, obviously. You know, we're happy to be part of the Movie John Podcast Network where you can find other great podcasts, uh, not the least of which would be uh, Killer Bees, which is a show that our friend Tori is involved with that's doing some really interesting work. As I understand it, we've got some Bill Duke stuff coming down the pike, which I'm very excited about because I love that guy, uh, both as an actor and director. Um, so find more uh, about Butter With That on our socials. Uh, be sure to write us an email if you get a chance at uh, butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find more information about us and the other podcasts available at uh, moviejohn, that moviejawn.com. Aside from that, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, and uh, we'll be boogieing out of here, but uh, we'll see you next week with more directors. Oh my gosh. I want to learn that entire dance sequence. Um, Let's do that at the live show. <gasps> oh my gosh. Oh, the live <laughs> show that never was. I totally forgot about that. Someday. Oh, someday. Yeah, okay. Let's not talk about movies during our live show. Let's just do that dance. It's just dance. (laughs) In era clothing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I wanted, like, every single one of those outfits. (laughs) 